Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Josh. And this is the Bad at Magic podcast, a podcast about games, life, and other things. And welcome to episode 43. So I have something for 43, and it's not something that I had to Google at the last second. Okay, what is it? Okay, so 43 was the number where the heart rate monitor I was hooked up to started going off and setting off an alarm. And then a bunch of nurses came rushing into my hospital ER room to resuscitate me wait, wait, when wait, I, was, wait, wait, wait. I was fine. <laughs> I was just getting comfortable. What the heck are you talking about, man? So many questions. Uh, so, yeah, I'm turning bad at numbers into our recurring segment, it seems like, bad at staying alive. <laughs> I'm the one that's bad at staying alive, Josh. What are you talking about hospital? Okay, so this is a long story. I'll give you the short version. I'll let you pick it apart. Um, I was a couple of times this month when I've been out for my normal run, I'd be running and then if it would feel like my heart just gave one real super hard thump, like, like just running normal. Everything feels good. And out of nowhere, one of my heartbeats is so hard that it causes pain and hurts me like through my chest and back. Okay. But that's just once. terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying, but it was only once. And then everything went back to normal after that. And so like, I would stop running and walk for a bit and be like, Oh, that was really freaky. And like the first once or twice it happened, I kind of, Walked for a little bit and then picked back up at a slow jog and finished the run. And then I'd run multiple times after that, uh, other days, like ramping up to be just as hard or harder runs. Uh, on Monday, it happened again. And it, it hit so hard this time that like my lungs burned for the night after that. And then I just had like discomfort in my chest throughout the week to the point where I was having trouble going to sleep at night. And then I was up Friday. I went in to... Okay, hang on. Uh, just hearing you describe this is making the color drain from my face. Because you're just describing yeah. it so manner-of-factly. But wow, I'm really alarmed. I'm assuming you were too when this was going on. Like, okay, if I go for a run and my knee makes a popping sound and it only happens once, I'm like, eh, maybe it was nothing. And I keep running and I forget all about it. But the second or third time it happens, especially if there's pain associated with it, I'm starting to get alarmed. But your heart is not your knee. Yeah, see, I get that. But everything that I, that you ever know about heart disease, like, shouldn't apply to me. Like, <laughs> I, I eat decently healthy. I exercise regularly. Like, I started. What's doing your family new... history? None. There isn't any. Uh, okay. All right. All right. I... So you don't have any of the known risk factors, which doesn't make it a zero percent chance that you could have heart disease, but it does decrease the odds. Well, then I did what you do when these things happen is I, I went to Google to tell me that I had cancer. But this is, the shock, <laughs> this is the shocking thing. It didn't tell me I had cancer. Really? It told me that, oh, heart palpitations or just like some weird arrhythmia or whatever that's momentary and passing is like pretty normal in a lot of people. And this is what, what really kicked me is I said, if you're experiencing it, try to live a more active lifestyle, like get up and go for a walk five or 10 minutes a day. And I'm like, so why did you think it applied to you then? That's well, this is what I'm saying. Like none of these articles apply to me. Okay. Like, I was trying to All find right. like during exercise, like I'm I'm in good shape. Everything that I've done up to this point seems okay. Why is this happening? And, but I, I couldn't get any clear answers. Anyway, um, on Friday, I was at my desk and it was like the discomfort was increasing. It was getting to the point where it was starting to be noticeable and bother me while I was trying to work. Just so, like, for, being at rest, for, not even running. No, not no. I haven't run since Monday. And this didn't exist the week before. Yes. Okay. So I called. I made an appointment with my doctor. And I, they like, oh, what do you need the appointment for? Oh, well, I have chest pains. And, like, I had some weird heart thing that happened while I was running the other day. Like, okay. So um, you should go to urgent care. 
we will make your appointment for next week as a follow-up, but you should go to urgent care or the ER. I'm like, oh. Um, you said one of the just, magic words that's a buzzword yeah. for doctors. They're like, uh-oh, if I don't tell this guy to the, go to the hospital, this could be medical malpractice. Well, it was funny because when I said that, the person that was scheduling me, one of the admin people there goes, okay, uh, I'm going to put you on a brief hold. I'm going to get a nurse on the line. I'm like, oh, something's going on. And they told me specifically, you need to go to urgent care of the ER to get some tests run. I'm like, oh, just before the appointment? And she goes, no, right now. You just reminded me oh. of a scene from Scrubs where JD's looking at someone's chart and the guy goes, doctor, am I going to be okay? And JD looks off into the distance and you hear the voice in his head go, he's going to die. <laughs> well, I'm not dead yet. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, I did go to urgent care. Uh, this this is kind of a funny story. I went to urgent care and they did an EKG and they told me to go to the ER to get more tests. And I go to the ER and I said, yeah, I was at urgent care and they sent me here. And they go, yeah, urgent care always sends people to the ER on Fridays because they don't want to stay late and they want to go start their work. Like, oh, well, that's good to know. So and honestly, three people at the ER said, yeah, don't waste your time or your money. Just go straight to the ER. Don't go to urgent care. Okay. That's not me saying that. That was medical professionals telling me that. So I, I can just see your whole like, did you leave early from work for this? I did, yes. So, so just like the whole rest of your day from like noon till 8 p.m. was just down the tubes. I, I did go to urgent care at noon for my lunch break. And then I texted my wife on my way back to work. I was like, hey, they said I should go to the ER to get more tests. I'm going to swing by the office. I'm going to eat my lunch real quick. And then I'm going to go to the ER. And she's like, uh, <laughs> no, you're going to go to the ER. Uh, fine. So I didn't eat lunch that day. No one pops into the, to the hospital real quick. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was at the ER for the rest of the day. I, I didn't get home until seven. But they released me. They discharged me. Uh, they said I am. Like, I'm not. Sh- all of the tests were fine. Uh, I don't. None of my tests read as somebody that had recently had heart trauma or a heart attack or anything like that. They weren't sure what's causing the persistent discomfort, but they're going to have a, a somebody like a caseworker call me and schedule a follow up with a cardiologist. That's the worst. Uh, I'd rather go to the specialist first, to be quite frank with yeah. you, because you skip all these intermediate steps of having everyone tell you, "Yeah, there's something wrong with you, but we don't know what it is. You should see somebody smarter than me." All right, so you're you're gonna live. They're not super alarmed, but you're not gonna feel good until you've talked to a heart specialist. Those were literally the questions I asked when they were telling me all this stuff. I'm like, so I'm gonna live through the weekend. They're like, most likely, yes, you're gonna live through the weekend. They put me in some super low risk category and told me just you're to not wearing home, so. like a portable heart monitor or something. No, no, no. I don't have a heart monitor. They didn't install a pacemaker. They let me drive myself home. Okay. Like, they didn't even give me any narcotics or anything. So, uh. If nothing else, like I, I'm still feeling a little discomfort and it was still like laying down. It kind of hurt a little bit last night. But what was causing me to lose sleep over it was I didn't know what it was. Right. Now I've had medical professionals tell me that they don't I'm know what risk, it is. Most likely fine. <laughs> no, Ben, you're focusing on the wrong things that were told that, I, that were said to me. They said I should be fine. I'm low risk. And so I, it was easier to sleep at night uh, until I'm, the scorpion stung. Not... What? Until the scorpion stung me at one in the morning and woke me up. Uh, hashtag Arizona <laughs> been, problems. So I've, I've had the worst 24 hours. Like that. If, have you ever been stung by a scorpion? No. That sounds terrible. So here's the thing about scorpion stings. It's not like a bee sting or an insect bite where it's just localized pain. Yeah. It's actual venom like a rattlesnake that gets into your body. And so my whole arm was on fire by the oh. time I found it, killed it, and went to bed. And then when I woke up, the venom was traveling through my bloodstream, and so my foot was numb, and part of my face was on fire. So wait, wait, wait. So many questions again. So you've been stung by a scorpion enough times that you knew, even though it happened while you were asleep, what was causing the pain? 
Oh yes, I've been stung by a scorpion. That was the second time I've been woken up like, in my bed. If a scorpion in this stung house me while I was asleep and I woke up and didn't see the scorpion and my arm was hurting, I'd be like, "Why is my arm hurting?" So it start. I didn't know the first time. I didn't know the first time. I, I was woken up by something stinging my leg, and I was like, "Ah, oh, what is that?" And I got up and I flipped the blanket back and I saw the scorpion that time. And so I jumped out of bed and I woke my wife up. She goes, and she was mad because it's the middle of the night. What are you doing? Uh, there's a scorpion in the bed, and I have never seen a woman go from dead asleep to fully awake, upright, and standing up on a table faster than that in my whole life. Standing on a table? Nah, that's that's an exaggeration. <laughs> she wasn't actually. She did go flying out of the bed, though, and we caught it and killed it. And the same thing happened this time. It stung my arm. I got out of bed. She's like, what are you doing? Like, I got stung by a scorpion. I'm looking for it. And we found it. And then I, I don't know if you've seen scorpions, but anybody that has seen a scorpion in real life, not behind glass, they're made of nightmares. Yeah, yeah. Little things. I think we talked about this before. I went to your house one time and we were sitting around the campfire in your backyard with your parents. And I mentioned just matter of factly that I'd never seen a scorpion in real life. And everyone went, what? You haven't? Let's look at one right now. I'm like, how can we look at one right now? How will you possibly know where one is? And you're like, little known fact, scorpions shine bright purple when you get a black light. Somebody get a black light. I'm like, why do you have a black light? For finding scorpions, of course. So we walked over to the wood pile, moved a few <laughs> logs around, and there was like dozens of scorpions in your wood pile. And so, yes, I've seen one in real life. And they're terrifying, aren't they're, they? Yeah, it's, it's horrific. And, and they go so, under the black light. So, yeah, now I've got that in my mind, too. So it's uh, imagine being woken up because you were stung in the arm, and it's increasingly getting more and more painful. And you know what it is, and it's dark. And you're wearing like gym shorts and nothing else. Like this, this is what I'm sleeping. <laughs> but and why so, would they sting you while you're sleeping? I don't know. Maybe they're going to try to eat me. Maybe he was double dog dared by his friends. They're I don't made, know. <laughs> they're, they're made out of nightmares and they're jerks. Yeah. And it's always me. It's all, I don't, it, it doesn't matter. I got out of bed and I grabbed that black light flashlight that sits on my nightstand for situations like this because it's dark in the room and there's no way you're going to find it. But you click the flashlight on and boom. Oh. There it is, right where I was laying. Wow. Okay, well, your wife didn't get stung because she's staying on the table. Have they ever stung the kids? They have not, and I'm, I'm really glad that they haven't stung the kids. Like, they do have a scorpion anti-venom at hospitals, and if one of my kids got stung, I would take them to go get the anti But you, you've reached bad. the desensitization point where you don't feel that's necessary. <laughs> so the first time I was stung by a scorpion, and my part of my face, I, I must have gotten a lot more venom the first time because, like, it was traveling through my system all day at work that day. And like like uh, throughout the day, like part of my fingers would start to tingle. My face would go. You're talking about today. No, no, no. This is, this was the first time I got stung. Not, not today. Oh, but that time I was scared enough to call poison control and be like, what do I do? Am I like, I don't want to be like that guy that's freaking out over a bee sting, but am I going to die? And they're like, no, you're fine. Suck it up. You could go to the hospital and get the antivenom if you really need it. Tough guy. I'm like, okay, fine. Message received. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So you went, you got stung by a scorpion in your bed and you spent the evening at the hospital getting an EKG. Holy crap. You, you're bad at staying alive this week. Oh, not just an EKG. They had to take blood. And Ben, I don't know if I've expressed my, my hatred for needles on this podcast, but uh, I have, I, I hate needles. I get lightheaded when I see them. I don't like getting yeah, shots. So you didn't pass out when you got an IV? <laughs> I didn't know I was getting an IV. She's like, all right, we're going to take some blood. I'm like, okay. And I turned away and I was facing the other wall. And she's like, oh, you're not a needles guy? No, I am not. And the, usually the technicians are, are so good about this because she engaged me in conversation, was talking about all the right things to like kind of just try to distract me from the fact that she's shoving steel into like the yeah, most yeah. precious parts of my body. 
And then what I didn't realize, like, okay, we're all done. I'm like, okay, great. And I look back and she had taped the IV into my elbow, not hooked up to anything, but still left it there just in case for later. And then I got really lightheaded and rosy. <laughs> You're like, oh, no. There is steel still in me. Yeah. I just didn't move that arm for the rest of the night. Just kept it, like, straight out and away from me while Jeez. I was watching TV. But why? Well, they they took the blood sample. They didn't know if they were going to have to take more blood later. And then at some point, they ordered fluids for me for some reason. I, I think that they ordered fluids because when the uh, doctor was listening to my heart through the stethoscope, they heard my stomach growl, like, really loud. That, <laughs> They're not telling you something, Josh. Uh, maybe they were. Yeah, well, and like I said, my heart rate, I started getting comfy and my heart rate started dropping below their threshold for alarms or whatever. Because uh, and they even said it's like, oh, we have this problem with people that are in shape and runners all the time because your resting heart rates are lower than what our monitors are set for. And so the monitor starts going off, which then throws an alarm to their desk at the station and everybody comes charging in thinking I'm. I don't know, seizing or dying or something. And I'm, I'm just like watching uh, an Owen Wilson movie on cable. I'm like, oh, um, I'm fine. I'm just tired. Yeah. You sent me a, you sent me a text. that was a photo of an EKG and it was so far outside of the realm of things I was expecting you to text me that my brain didn't even know how to process it. I'm, I'm glad you're okay. <laughs> like That was really scary. I, I'm also glad that I'm okay for now. And for all the listeners who, who care about my health that might or might let listen, like, I'll be fine. Seriously, I'm a terrible person. Don't worry about me anyway. All right. Well, well I, 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 my wife, when she's like, she, I asked her, like, were you worried when I was in the hospital? She goes, no, not really. I'm like, yeah, that's true. You do, you do have the million dollar life insurance policy in the <laughs> office. Wow. All right. Well, let's pretend our mortality is not uh, staring us in the face and just go on and talk about unrelated things that aren't as important for no reason. Well, let's talk about Magic the Gathering then. That sounds great. Uh, good news, bad news. Bad news, Vintage Cube was over. Aw. Aw. I know. Last week in March, Vintage Cube went away, and I checked the calendar. There is no – they are really bad at updating the calendar, but there is no – nowhere on there does it say when Vintage Cube is coming back. Yeah, I think you had a much better run this time around than I did. I only won one trophy. I didn't win any trophies, but I won my entry fee back multiple times. And so I got to keep playing on the house's money. Yeah. That's the important thing for me because I don't want to pay – I don't want to pay $10 to a video game every time I sit down to draft Ben. That's just too much. Well, there – but uh, – okay. I think that $10 plays an important part. And this is – I mean, this is how I'll relate it to people that don't play this game. It is – Okay, one time when, when I early when I started playing and trying to decide how big of a commitment I wanted to make of it and how, how much my budget was going to be for it, I tried a few online solutions that they have that have no monetary commitment associated with it. So what it does is you have like a client you install on your computer and you can pretend like you virtually own every card in Magic as many copies as you want. And it oh. will and it will I can see where this is going. It will connect you with another random person and you can play with anyone you want, with any deck you want. It sounds on the surface to be the best possible option. But uh, let me guess what happens in reality is either one, everybody's playing all of the most busted cards all the time. And since there's no investment in it, like the second the game starts to go against them, they just bail and go find another one. That second thing is, is oh, it, okay. you know, everybody's playing the most busted cards anyway. Uh, it, you know, if you go on Magic Online and do a modern uh, event or something like that, you're playing against tier one decks. But if 
when you're playing on the free client, as soon as, as they get a bad draw, they have to take more than one mulligan. As soon as anything goes wrong, they bail out and it ruins, ruins the gameplay experience. It's like playing pinball with the glass off. It's just no fun. Huh. That's interesting. So the fact that I had to pay $10 and I was so emotionally invested in not wasting that $10 kept me in a, in a frame of mind that made it more fun to play against me. Yes, it makes you focus on it. It makes you hang in when things go wrong because maybe you can turn it around. It makes you try hard when you get backed into a corner. It does a lot of things that make the game fun that are important. It also makes me lash out at my children whenever I'm doing poorly <laughs> and they come over and say, hey, daddy, how's your game? I'm doing terrible. Now stop talking to me. Well, you've always been in search of that vintage cube experience, which is admittedly pretty great. And so this week, Magic Online posted an alternative cube they call the Nega Cube. This was made by a person that had a very clear vision. Like they wrote an article about the thing before it went up. And it was they wanted to create a cube that showcased some of the cards that hang on exist hang on magic. for the layperson a cube is just a sampling of some of the cards in magic pulled aside and used to play a format where everyone picks cards out of this small subset of cards to provide a very um, curated gaming experience for a small group of players right so the vintage cube is i mean how many was there tens of thousands of magic cards that have been printed right, at this point right so, yeah, the Vintage Cube takes what the manufacturer thinks are the best cards in the game, and they put them all into a package in a way that everything's kind of balanced and there's multiple strategies that you can do. And, like, you get that subset of 360 or whatever cards, and then from that, there's this little game you have to play to pick the ones that you want. Right. So this Nega Cube was the same thing. Of the tens of thousands of cards that exist, this person went and pulled 360 of the cards that they wanted. And they had a good intent. They wanted to pick cards that had never been in any cube ever before. So because there are so many cards in Magic, like, a lot of them get glossed over as, you know, they're, they're around for one set and then everybody forgets about them forever kind of thing. And the, the intent was to kind of showcase some of the, the lesser known stuff in, in the world. And I thought that sounded really good on the surface. And like they had built in a couple of like viable archetypes and there was some good synergies. I thought, okay, this could be fun to play. Yeah. So hang on before you get to your, what was wrong with it. So you sent this to me, you sent me this article and said, Hey Ben, check this out. There's going to be a new cube come out this week. Take a look. So you sent it to me and I got the article and I opened it up and I did what I do when I see that kind of thing. I glance at it, I'm like, oh, some new kind of cube. It looks like a girl here. She's made this cool thing where she tried to find cards that never been used before. That sounds interesting. And then she got into, now let me tell you about every single archetype and all the cards I have in my cube. I kind of went, blah, 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 blah. And I went to the end and I closed the article and had no intent of going back to it, which I thought would be, <laughs> which I thought would be the end of it until. Until, like, I wanted to draft it because I thought it sounded good. And I was going through and seeing the card choices. And I, I did go through and read the entire card pool. And I was like, okay, I see what's going on here. I thought I had a good idea of what was in it and how fast it was going to be. I'm like, That's, let's draft this cube, Ben, you and me. Let's have fun with it. And I had a miserable experience with this cube, almost <laughs> without fail. Like, I, I put $20 into the client, and that, that's enough to pay for, for two drafts. And the first draft I played, I won one match, which got me enough points, combined with the points I had left over from Vintage to do another draft. And then I lost that one 0-3, so I had no points. And then I drafted one last time with the $10 I had, and I thought I had a decent deck, and I got stomped so hard so fast that my money was just gone. So you went 0-3 the third time as well? Yes, I did. Okay. 
All right. So it's hard for me to say what happened without sounding like I'm rubbing it in. So I'm I'm not even going to try to hide it. (laughs) So when you sent me this article and you're like, hey, let's both draft this. And we had some free time and we got on Skype together and like watched one of the, I think you watched me do a draft. And right before that, you're like, well, did you read the article? I'm like, I browsed it. You're like, how can you do this without having read the article? And it was a replay of something that we've talked about on the show. So I want to talk about how real life compares to magic and why this is a kind of a source of stress in my life sometimes. I, You and I both went to the cube with the intent of playing magic and having fun, but obviously we're different people and we have different things we get out of life. And so I ha- we have something different we're going to get out of experiencing the same curated portion of the game. And for me, the experience I have is going to this with enough knowledge to be able to play it without having read all the article, read all the cards, read all the archetypes, but just being surprised by the new cards that are coming up that are ones I haven't seen before or haven't seen in a long time. And then using my skills and knowledge that I bring with me to the game to do something that's surprising and interesting and unique and new. And so that was my intent. But you were like, well, how can you possibly do this without knowing everything about it in advance? You have to do the research, Ben. You got to do the legwork. Like if you're going to commit to something, you should understand and research and know what you're getting yourself into. And I was flabbergasted that you were deliberately avoiding information about something that you were going to sink time, effort and money into. Yeah, so I I drafted a a deck with you heckling me. You maybe influenced my picks a little bit, but for the most part, I just picked the cards that I wanted and thought I was good. And once I felt like I was starting to get an archetype, I picked the cards that supported that archetype and built the deck. And I went 3-0 and got a trophy. Now, I would like to point out, what archetype did you draft? Do you remember? Uh, it was kind of a deck that utilizes red and black creatures that get value out of sacrificing the creatures you control. Yes. And do what I discovered, Ben. Every single game I played after I watched you was against either a black-red or black-green or black-red-green sacrifice deck. And they stomped okay. you. And they stomped me every okay. time. Like, far and away, it was... hands down the best archetype possible in the cube okay so am i just that like stereotypical lucky guy that bumbles into the best strategy or no i don't think so i think you so i introduced you to magic at the time i was i was a a devout blue player and i I raised you to be a good blue player but like many parents i'm disappointed in the choices (laughs) that you've made and now you're a hardcore spiky red aggro player and so I, we evaluate cards differently. Like we, the number of times we've drafted together and I just like shake my head at your choices and you do the same thing to me. And we both end up with decent decks yeah. and, and we do well with them because we have such different play styles. Yeah. Your play style is much more, oh, I'm going to sacrifice all my stuff and get all this value. Mine is much more, I'm going to try to sit over here and control the game. And that just wasn't viable. So... The point I want to make about how this is like real life is I think there's a place in every organization for a guy who takes your approach and a guy who takes my approach. But sometimes like when I come to a new job and the person I'm replacing is uh, training me and they want me to take the read everything in advance and know everything approach and I want to take the discover by doing approach, they they aren't content to just go, oh, I see that you're different than me and you've been successful up to this point so that must work for you. They, they kind of take the approach you kind of want to take and say, no, not doing it my way is doing it wrong. 
I think that's one of the biases that we should talk about because just because something is different doesn't make it wrong, but it's so hard not to like doing the things that you do. I, I always seem to get punished. And so it's been reinforced in my mind through life experience that I should do due diligence and research into things that I, before I make my decisions. And yeah. obviously that like the, I, I was, uh, it, it was reinforced or whatever you want to say, like my developmental path took me to that conclusion. And so when I see somebody doing something different, I don't see, oh, he must have had a different experience. All I see is all of the pathways in my brain saying, that's wrong. That's going to cause problems. That's going to cause pain because that's how my brain has been built to work. Yeah. I mean, there's the old metaphor of taking off your eyeglasses and handing them to another person. Like, these help me see better. Here you go. That's a that's a metaphor. Is that something yeah. that people actually do? I mean, the idea is, of course, they won't necessarily work for the other person. They might happen to, but maybe they have a different prescription than you and need a different way of doing, you know, to see better. This is a tangent, but just based on genetics, I think there's not going to be any perfect eyesight in the human race after a couple more generations. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, too, as we were talking about how uh, our ability to innovate and and natural selection is no longer filtering out bad genetic traits. It's not filtering out eyesight like it would have back in the prehistoric era. Yeah. Well, I'd have been eaten by like a sloth at this point. (laughs) There's one other magic thing I wanted to talk about, and that is there is a new set coming out. Right now we're in the phase of, so about four times a year, Magic the Gathering releases some kind of brand new content, usually a set of somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 cards. And right now we're in what's called spoiler season, which is the old set's a bit stale. People have played with it. They know what it's all about. And now the new set's about to come out. It hasn't yet, but they're teasing out new cards and leaking them out a little bit of time to get people excited about it. And Josh, I got to be honest, I haven't been this excited about a new set in a long time. We talked about this in an early episode of the podcast. You, you're one of those old hats that doesn't really get pumped up for the new sets. coming. Well, I did this time. You did, and I think it's because it's a it's a blatant like I don't even think they're trying to hide it. They're doing Harry Potter in Magic the Gathering. Yes, but with, not w- without the rights. But yeah, so they, <laughs> they they did it for college instead of for you know primary school. Yeah, this is uh, the set is called Strixhaven, and the story and the lore behind it is that this is the premier magical college in the multiverse of all possible realms, known and unknown. This is where you go if you want to learn how to do the good magic. Right. This is the Oxford of, of magic universities. Oh, yeah. Suck it, Brown. <laughs> All right. Well, the, so the exciting thing about this is that magic's lore and mechanics already really lend to this idea, even though J.K. Rowling probably wasn't influenced by Magic the Gathering, of having houses that kind of correspond to different cultures and and personalities. And so in this set, they chose to use the five enemy color pairs as the identities for the five houses. And you can go online and take a quiz and find out based on your personality and your decisions, just like the sorting hat in Magic Gathering, uh, sorting hat in the Harry Potter universe, which house you belong to. So you and I both did this. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to go and find out which Strixhaven college you belong to. It's a fun little personality quiz. Even if you're not Magic the Gathering player, I recommend you check it out. So what was your college, Josh? So my college was the College of Silverquill. This is the white and black college of leaders and demagogues. These are, so if you're imagining like any cliche teenager movie, these are the cool kids, the popular kids that 
uh, separate themselves and they're very clicky and they look down on all the other cliques in the high school and nobody approaches them because they're just a little too good. They're just slightly better than you, Ben. I feel, <laughs> I feel very good about being in Silver Quill. Nice. So I took the quiz, and that's the colors black and white, which tend to be associated with order and ambition. Ambition is a good way of putting, screw everybody else, I'm out for me. Yeah. So I tested, and I got the College of Lorehold, which is uh, traditionally the red-white color pair known as Boros, uh, and those are the ideals of order and chaos, which is interesting kind of well, having... I'm going to correct you a bit here. In this context, red is associated more with freedom. Okay. Order and freedom, which is an interesting combination and I think really goes well for me. I like the idea of doing things by a pattern, but also doing something exciting. Yeah, and the whole story behind them is they are archaeologists, and they, they learn by going out into the wilderness and discovering new things. So if any of this sounds like it appeals to you and you've been thinking about trying Magic Gathering or if you just want to go for a second and, and check it out, um, I'll put a link in the show notes. You can go to their site, take the quiz, find out which college you're in, maybe watch the promotional video and maybe think about get, checking the game out. My son was watching like some of the preview content and things that they put up on the site with me as I'm watching like the little cartoons and the, the, the spoiler commercials and all the stuff that they're putting up. And he was interested. He's like, what is this? Like, oh, this is the new set that's coming out for Magic. Like, oh, what is it about? I'm telling him, like, what the backstory and stuff is. And I was like, you know what? Sit down. Take the quiz. And so he took the quiz, too. I asked him the questions and went through it. And he ended up with uh, Quandrix, the school. That's the, the blue-green school that their motto is math is magic. And so they're, like, random intellectual weirdness going on. That's cool. Anyway, but this made me realize that I, then I, I took a hard look at it. And I'm, I'm, start, I'm thinking in my head, how old are you? Can you do math? You can kind of read now. And then I asked you, like, how old was your oldest son when you first introduced him to magic? And you said it was a little bit younger than my son is now. What's funny is you said, I asked you, like, when did Michael start playing magic? And you said, what, seven or six yeah, or seven? Yeah, like eight. Yeah, and my, you said that. And my son heard you. My son looks at me and he goes, I'm nine. <laughs> like, like I wasn't gonna put it together. Like you just gotta make sure that yeah, that message got to you, the Dad. Room. Yeah, exactly. So this might be the first time that I get a couple of the starter decks and hand him the blue green one. Ooh. I'll take the black white one, and maybe we'll see if he's uh-huh. if he can play this game. I love this as a little rite of passage for you, my friend. That's great. I, I hope you have a good experience. Oh, I'll have a great experience stomping him in the dirt game after game after game. <laughs> nope. Sorry, son. That's not how the stack works. Yeah. So I think it was the same night. You had you stepped away from the computer for a second. And your kids, I, I think you probably recognize this is an unusual characteristic for children. But they don't shy away from me. Uh, that you know they're familiar with me kind of being around and seeing me every couple of years or so. That they that they you know think of me as a friend. But that. So you stepped away from the computer and he came up to the screen and was talking to me about what was going on. And so in trying to engage with the converse, in a conversation with Carter, I said, so Carter, which, um, which Harry Potter house do you belong to? And he didn't know what I was talking about. Okay, so we introduced Carter to Harry Potter a couple of years ago. And he is super freaked out by Harry Potter because... Watching them with our kids for the first time, I realized, you know, these movies are super dark. Yeah. Like, the first one is about six-year-olds facing down moving statues that are trying to kill them. And a, and a grown man trying to murder a baby. 
Yeah, like there's a lot of very dark elements to yeah. this. Okay. Yeah, anyway, he, he was he was almost antagonistic to the idea. So I figure maybe he's just not around to it yet. I don't know, maybe he won't be. Uh, I mean, we'll address it later on. Like uh, he's uh, my son is very much like me. He has a very strong imagination and he loves these stories and he gets really sucked into the media that he consumes, which means he also has a problem with nightmares. And like I had a problem with nightmares like through college. I remember the first time I had to sleep in a room by myself was essentially in college, the second semester senior year. And there were some nights where I was in there like, I wish I had a roommate. Yeah, but, that's no joke, man. A year ago, you know what happened at the academy a year ago, right? No, what happened a year ago at the academy? A year ago when COVID-19 kicked off, they sent all the, all the freshmen sophomores and juniors home and they locked all the seniors in the remaining rooms one to a room and they and they'd been in there for about a month and two of them committed suicide yeah i can see that happening they were just like sending mres under the doors or something and they were just they just locked them in there and after two killed themselves they finally had to realize that that wasn't the right approach that that was that yeah they might be preventing the spread of covid but they weren't preserving their lives so if anybody didn't get from the talk we had about the Air Force Academy, it's very stressful. And the people that go there are on edge. I would have had nightmares, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's time for Bad at Logic. Is it now? All right. Yes. Let's do it. All right. So in our deck of critical thinking cards from uh, yourlogicalfallacyis.com, I had I pulled a card this week. Uh, I think we'll let you take the biases and I'll take the logical fallacies and we did a bias last week. So this week our fallacy is false cause. Excellent. False cause is presuming that a real or perceived relationship between things means that one is the cause of the other. You see this all the time. All the time. So Every much. Every day this happens. And what's insidious about it is that it's not always obvious that this is happening. I think it was the day after uh, Biden took office. My fr- my friends were posting like photos of gas prices. Like, can you believe yeah. this? <laughs> the causation. Yeah. Oh, the causation. So, so things... It's easy to link things in your mind that aren't necessarily related. I think the example they give on this card is uh, like temperatures have been increasing around the world. Global warming. Yeah, global warming has been increasing while the rate of piracy has been decreasing. So clearly pirates have been keeping the planet cold. Right. (laughs) And and that's obviously ludicrous. But like you just said, there are ones that are far less ludicrous that it's it's easier to draw a straight line from one to the other, even though that straight line doesn't exist to to make people imply that the connection is there and then start associating things that they shouldn't be doing, that they shouldn't be connecting. Yeah. If you're trying to be good at critical thinking, this one is ever present and really easy to call to and really difficult to prove against. I think there's a maximum out there. I forget the name of it. Basically, the amount of effort to say something stupid and the amount of effort to prove it wrong is like an order of magnitude greater. <laughs> one, uh, I'll give one example of that I saw early on in the COVID pandemic was that a lot of people that were trying to downplay the virus or trying to say that this wasn't as bad as it was they were saying that like, oh, well, all these doctors are declaring these you know, elderly patients dead for because of COVID. Well, that's ridiculous when they died of like a heart attack. And 
okay, yes, we're trying to correlate the death rate of a virus with with people that um, in some circumstances, they probably died of seven different things hitting them all at the same time. Right. And COVID might have been one of them. So it, is that causation exist? Maybe, maybe not. But you can't you can't dismiss it and you can't also accept it at face value either. Yeah. All right. Well, if you want to be a good thinker, you got to look out for false cause because it is ever present in today's idea interchange. You've just got to be super skeptical. Don't believe yeah. a word anybody says to you about anything <laughs> ever. I had a bad at husbanding moment this week, Josh. Oh, tell me about it. So my wife called me on the phone and she did something that was a verbal signal to me that I needed to be on guard not to be a bad husband. Okay. She said to me, well, this thing happened and I didn't want to tell you about it because if I told you about it, I knew you would, you would aggravate me about it. And so I didn't tell you about it. And my alarm's going off going, alert, alert, alert. Whatever the next thing she says is, <laughs> I have to not do whatever I, my initial reaction would have been. Yeah, all right, folks, we're in murky waters here. Let's take our time, really think about this stuff. You know the movie Minority Report with uh, Tom Cruise? Yes. You know how he gets the red ball because he kills some guy named Leo Crote? He's like, Leo Crote, I don't even know who that is. Why on earth would I kill him? Right. So he, he's primed the same way I was. Like, well, okay, maybe at some point in the next 24 hours I'm going to meet Leo, Leo Crote, but I'm not going to kill him. So, you, So in your mind, you're thinking like, okay, well, Whatever she says next, I'm not going to freak out about. Maybe I would have before, but I'm primed. I understand. I'm ready for it. Yes. So I'm doing that in my head. And then she says the thing. And it was, she was so right. That <laughs> <laughs> she just knew her Ben simulator just pegged you. Yeah. She says, well, the license plate for the new car came, but I, I haven't really had the time to put it on the car yet. Okay. Like, that's something you need to have on a car right. to, like, drive it places. Right. And, and my mind's saying that, but I know I can't say that. <laughs> so she goes on, and for about the next minute, I can't hear a word she says, and then I'm starting to come back out and listening to whatever she's saying now, because she just gave that as an example. But she, And so, meanwhile, in the back of my head, here's another scene from a movie. You've seen the movie uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, right? I have, yes. Do you remember when they know that Roger's hiding in the diner and they got to get him to come out from hiding? And so they walk around the, the, the tavern going. Yeah, shave and a haircut. And yeah. then he comes blasting through the wall. Yeah, exactly. They're like, well, well that's not going to work. What's that going to do? And they're like, no tune can resist the old shave and a haircut gag. And they're like, that's <laughs> not going to work. And then they look over at Roger and he looks like he's going to explode. I'll put, a, I'll put a clip in the show notes. He's going. <laughs> yeah. So at, the, so at the end of the phone call, I can't contain myself anymore. She's like, all right, I guess I'll talk to you later. I'm like, you got to put the license plate on the car. I'm going to die. <laughs> now, yeah. Like, you're, like I w we went through so much heartache and struggle to try to get this car in the driveway, and you're going to get it towed and impounded because you don't have license plates on it. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's like, see, I told you you couldn't handle it. I was like, oh, she was so right about that. Do you know what I could handle? Is if you had put the license plate on the car, then this wouldn't be an issue. You, all right, so, all right, Alicia, you're a great person, and I don't mean to backseat drive here, but if you knew that it was going to drive Ben super crazy that you hadn't taken the five minutes to put the <laughs> license plate on the car, why didn't you just go put the license plate on the car? 
We're, this is, we're different people. She processes these things differently than me. Okay. So that was my bad at husbanding moment. <laughs> so I have a bad at husbanding moment. I'm recording currently from uh, our casita. And a casita, for people who aren't don't live in the Southwest, is a room of your house that is not physically separated. It's still physically attached to the house, but you have to go outside and then through another door to get into it. Okay. So this is like its own separate little apartment. Um, it's a full bedroom. It has a full bathroom attached. And like we could rent this out as an Airbnb and we would never see the people that were in here kind of thing. Got it. So this is where I record uh, the podcast. This is where I used to be set. My computer and everything was set up before COVID hit and I had to work from home full time. And I, I made the decision like I can't work out here by myself every day. I'll go insane. And that's when I moved my primary setup in the kitchen. And it's just getting more and more permanent by the day. That's where I live now. Okay. But this was still my man cave. Like I still have like, okay, I have a Klingon bat lift that I made out of sheet steel. Yes. Wrapped with awesome. Leather. I have that hanging on the wall here. Um, I have multiple comic book pictures. I have no fewer than three posters of okay. uh, Shepard from Mass Effect. Listeners, I want you to go on the subreddit and tell me if you're surprised that Josh owns a Klingon Batleth that he created himself. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's hanging, displayed prominently on the wall right in front of me. Um, this bookshelf is covered floor to ceiling in comic book nerd stuff and role-playing games and just all, all the nerd things. I have a foam core pirate ship that i made from scratch for a DD campaign once sitting over there awesome uh, there's a poster behind me that has every marvel character on it yeah like everyone like jammed into a group of you're such a this. creator you need a place for all this stuff to live but it's not coherent enough to kind of stay in the house in the living space oh no no this is not something that nicole's gonna allow in in her in her house right uh, the super nerdy the some of the nerdy stuff is working its way in there like she is open to the idea of displaying all of our halloween weapons that we've built over the years and accumulated uh, awesome. on a wall somewhere I'm our, our family solution for that is alicia has this giant plastic tote that all of the halloween costumes she's made go into and then anytime the kids want to like play dress up or have a school dress up day they just pull out the box and grab the costume that makes sense. But we, so we have costumes hanging and in a tote and in a pile somewhere. But I'm talking specifically about the weapons because every mm. year I'm always, I always seem to be making some kind of giant weapons that, that are cool. Yeah. This year it was uh, blasters from The Mandalorian. The year before it was giant swords from an anime cartoon. Yes. The year before that, I made a giant Warhammer, an actual working bow and arrow. Oh, yeah. That, and it, was a, it was a Warhammer with like a six foot long handle, huh? Yeah. That's still in my garage. It's pretty Okay. Awesome. But she's open to the idea of hanging these up on the wall somewhere. Okay, so this is your man cave. This is your, this is your my, space. Yes, this is my space. Well, Ben, um, my wife got a new job. She's working for the Maricopa County Justice Department or the Maricopa County Court System. I'm not sure what the acronym actually is. But she's back working for local government as an HR manager. And they are working remote right now because most responsible organizations are. So she was doing her doctorate like next to you at that cool desk you made in the kitchen. Is that not suitable? She's still, she's still, she's still doing her doctorate. Um, she is still sometimes using the computer that I rebuilt for her from scratch and put a new monitor next to it. That is better than mine that I want and she won't let me take. No, that's, that's, that's a different rabbit hole. Yes, she has a, a setup that's just as slamming as mine right next to me at the desk in the kitchen. But she's an HR manager. And she works in employee relations. She's okay. going to be dealing with like sensitive information day in and day out. Got it. So she can't be having me on the phone with clients next to her while she's on the phone trying to describe to somebody why they're being fired. Right. Unless you want to sign a non-disclosure agreement or something. 
All right, right. So there's just too many ifs, and she's way more professional. It can be like, that, "Mommy, so. hang on, could you hold on just a second? Yeah, no, no, that's not happening. <laughs> so anyway, she said that, "Hey, I need to get set up out in the office." I'm like, "Okay, great, no problem." You, you, I mean, the setup was all here. I had monitors that were sitting out here. I've had a keyboard and mouse that sit out here for the podcasting stuff. Yeah, just go nuts. And then a couple days later, stuff started showing up from Amazon. <laughs> so there was like, first it was like a handful of scented candles. I'm like, oh, what are those for? Oh, I'm just going to put them in the office. Oh, okay, no problem. And then like some fancy shelves showed up. Like some some of those weird like QB shelves that like fit together in like a weird origami pattern. Like, oh, what are these? Oh, I'm just going to put some stuff up. I'm like, oh, well, okay, that's that, that's fine. It's like, hey, those monitors that you have on your desk, yeah, those are pretty sweet, right? Yeah, they're too big. I'm going to need you to swap those out with the smaller ones that we have in storage. Like, oh, um, well, okay, I guess I can do that. Too bit. Wait, monitors are too big? I, I can't, that, that caught me off guard. All right, so uh, the two monitors that I did have on this table, um, one was the monitor that my parents bought me when I first went to college. It was a 26-inch LCD Samsung that was purchased in 2001. Oh. Then the the thing weighs sixty pounds. Okay, okay. And it's like, it, I mean, it's a classic. So it's not high resolution. It was just big. Yeah, it was just really big and thick and stuck out really far on the desk. And then okay. the other one was a refurbished Samsung TV that I had purchased that had HDMI input for some reason, like years and years ago. And so, like, it it was it was atrocious. Like the bezels were like four inches thick, and but it was like thirty six inches or something. So it was really big and also stuck out really far. Okay. So she needed a functional workspace, not a, I just need big screens workspace. Got it. Okay. Um, so, but I came out here on her first day of when she was working. And the first thing I noticed when I opened the door was the, the girly smell, just like the citrusy <laughs> orchard, like stuff hit me in the face. Like, oh, oh, why does it smell so girly in here? She's like, oh, that's my scented candle. Isn't it so nice? I'm like, no. And then I came over to the desk and realized, where are all my posters? Like right where I'm pointing to my right, there was I had like the coolest poster of Scarlett Johansson in her um, uh, Black Widow skin tight leather jumpsuit. <laughs> like any she didn't want to be staring at that all day where she was lecturing people on the proper principles of HR. No, no, no. She set up her computer and then saw what the camera angle was for all of her Skype or Zoom meetings <laughs> and replaced everything that was in that eye line. Like yeah. that poster came down and those fancy shelves went up. I had to hang pictures of the family for her later that day in that shot. We moved the books around so that the nerd books aren't showing and it's showing all of her like professional books now. Um, yeah, like this whole, there's a cone that emanates from this side of the desk across the room to that way. And everything inside that cone got replaced with girly, professional, nice okay. stuff. I see. I see <laughs> now why that happened. Including all the stuff on the desk. Ben. This half of the desk to my right used to be so perfectly cluttered with everything that I hated. And now it's all nice and organized. And like, there's a picture of my daughter. Like who wants this in their man cave on the desk? You know, I think about this every time I see like some guest uh, expert on CNN or something that's like webcasting from their basement and they're like in front of a bookshelf and you can see all the book titles behind them on the shelf. And you think they must have gone through their collection and handpicked out every single one of those titles and and you know stacked them just so that the right ones would be right in the field of view of the camera. I heard it said before that people don't like to read. People like to be perceived as a person who reads, which is why we have bookshelves with books that we don't read. If it were possible, my wife is kind of on the scale of what your wife is doing so far that she wrapped around all the way around the end back to the beginning again. You, you know what Alicia does for work now, don't you? I don't think I do. 
thought she, she was still doing the uh, sign language interpretation. Yes, she's an American okay. sign language interpreter. So because really the product of American sign language interpreting is looking at her doing interpreting, she can't just even have like a nice bookshelf with nice books behind her because that would be distracting. So we, we have like a green screen that she puts behind her that, that we just a screen that goes up behind her so that you can see nothing but her interpreting. That's it. So it and that's portable. It could be moved around, but she just needs good lighting and then a, a plain background and that's it. Okay. I told her she could use my pillow for it because, right, I physically <laughs> yeah. modified this room so that I can suspend giant comforters from the ceiling and drape down behind me and around me to sound dampen. I was like, just put those up and you can do meetings all day. Yeah, if you go back and listen to the first half dozen episodes of Bad at Magic, you can hear the echo of Josh's uh, casita. Yes, and then Ben scolded me one time and I'm like, oh, he doesn't think I'm taking this seriously? Watch how seriously I take it now. And I physically modified my home in order to accommodate the podcast better. And it was awesome. <laughs> so anyway, I had a man cave. It's still like that half over there that's not in the screenshot of my wife's work is still kind of mine. But everything over here is just so girly now. All right. Well, uh, what, what, what are you going to call it? You can't call it a man cave anymore. What, what are you going to call it? Nicole's oh, no, office? It's, it's already mommy's office. Like, yeah. that's, it's gone. It's not daddy's man cave. It's mommy's office now. Got it. I had a victory this week in, uh, we'll call it bad at bureaucracy. You, you can't win against the bureaucracy. That's the whole point. But sometimes you do, and you're never going to know unless you try. And I think you may have actually told me in advance this wasn't going to work. And so I, I love that it did. <laughs> this is so, one more thing that you just love rubbing in my face. So two weeks after my accident where I ended up in the hospital rollerblading, I got back on the pony you know, the proverbial getting back on the horse. And I put my roller blades on and I skated back to the spot where I'd had the accident. And it was just like I remember. There's the, there, you know, there are these eight foot sections of concrete and there's one that's completely missing and it was directly underneath the shade of a tree. So it's, it's just kind of invisible. And if you're coming up at it fast, you wouldn't have seen it far enough in advance to make a good decision about it. So I, I snapped a photo of it and then I got it from the other direction, snapped another photo on it. And I noticed on the ground, there was a marker that says, if there are maintenance issues on this path, call this number. Here's the address of it. So I went back to the city's website, filled out their form, submitted, gave some descriptions, attached the photos. And within less than a week, they had already poured new concrete. It's dry now. Now, which is awesome. Like, congratulations. Like, that is a clear win against against the man. Like, they came out, they fixed that that hole, and now people can safely rollerblade across it. Yeah. Now, you sent me all of this as it was happening, or when it, when it did happen. And I remember you sent me the screenshots of the forms that you had filled out and, and forwarded to me. And what I want to point out, and I'm still leaning on this, this hard, Ben, is in your description of what happened, you said, I was rollerblading. I was unable to see because of the terrain and the shade and whatever, which was totally viable from the pictures that you sent with it. You said, I was severely injured. Like you said that sentence like by itself and then continued to describe what the problem was with the sidewalk. And what's funny is then a couple days later, you got the response from the city like, here's the picture. We poured new concrete and fixed it. And then they went out of their way and said, even though this was not a city construction project or problem or anything, this had nothing to do with the city, but we fixed it anyway because we're such good guys. Eh. And so, like, I, I know this is this is clearly a victory for Ben, for the Ben against 
Finn versus bureaucracy, this is one point for Ben. But I'm going to put the little asterisk on there is because the only one because the city was deathly afraid you were going to sue their pants off. <laughs> well, it wasn't by accident that I used the phrase severely injured in my description of the problem. <laughs> and honestly, this is one of the times where I agree with you. You were severely injured. You had to have gravel medically removed from your person. That's pretty severe. Yeah. So hooray for that one. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to go see the, the little interaction with me in the city. Now, Listeners, you will not find a podcast with more riveting show notes than the ones that we put in where you can go and see the trouble ticket that we submitted to a city <laughs> in Florida to fix a sidewalk. This is quality content. I hope you all appreciate it. Well, I had a uh, Ben Vieres' bureaucracy fail this week because sometimes, you know, if you're following the process, it works. And sometimes you follow the process and it doesn't work. And it's usually when there's little tiny deviations. So I had a culture clash with the army that this week. Um, in the branch where I work, there's three people. There's a branch chief and two action officers. The action officers are rotational and the branch chief is permanent party. And what that means is he's assigned to this base. He lives here with his family and he stays here all the time. And he's going to be here for three years. Me and my compatriot, we're only here for six months. We're just here to learn the job real fast, do it for six months, and get out and get replaced by somebody else that's doing the same. We're the same rank, which means he's not really my boss, but since he has more of a stake in what's going on and a better view of the long-term process, he's going to be around. So he's kind of the one in charge of what all three of us are doing. Okay, so the, you're all peers, but the permanent party guy kind of has the say because he's vested. Right. Okay. So we submitted some paperwork to the Pentagon this week requesting uh, something I can't talk about. And it, the Pentagon kicked it back to us and they said that we, that we made an error. And I was the one that did it, but he's the one that took the phone call because that's how it works. And he didn't ask what the error was or ask for their reasoning or anything. He just like, oh, sorry, I should have caught that. And he hung up and started chewing me out. As soon as he started chewing me out, I realized that what was done wasn't an error. I had complied with our written policies and procedures. Okay. But he's in the army and he interpreted my reluctance to go along with what he was telling me to do as insubordination. That's how the army operates. Yes. They yes. do not listen to reason. There, It is charge the hill and shut your mouth. Right, exactly. And that's exactly what was happening. So we have an army major telling an air force major to jump. And instead of the air force major saying, how high? I said, why? <laughs> Which is what the air force trains its officers to do. Yes. In the air force, we like to say flexibility is the key to air power. And behind all that is this long, complex history of us getting a divorce for the army because, from the army because they weren't flexible. So in 1947, we got official divorce papers signed by Congress that said, Air Force, you can go off and have your own culture and live your own life so that you can be more flexible than the Army wants you to be. And it was a good decision. <laughs> but when you're in a joint environment where you're purple and you're working with your peers and stuff, there's a lot of friction. And so he lectured me and I, I had to eventually just tell myself it's okay I'm leaving in three weeks and he's the one that's going to have to deal with this This situation probably won't come up again it may not come up again for another six months it's kind of a rare corner case and I still think he's wrong about it okay but 
I just have to be like, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. I don't need to take on the man here. I don't need to fight this battle. I don't need to die on this hill. I can just let it go. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to say you would have had good company because I died on that hill when I was deployed with the army in Afghanistan. What happened like, to you? My, my corpse is rotting on that hill. Like <laughs> the Air Force versus the army stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I... Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to take over your Ben versus bureaucracy. No, go ahead. I want to. I want to hear your story of of your culture clash with the army. You already mentioned the one about untucking your shirt when you're in your PT uniform. Is that the one? Oh no, this one's way worse. Okay. This was. Um, there was a convoy that was leaving the base. They were going to go. Um, they had some unexploded ordnance, and they were going to go secure it and blow it up. And the like the army guys provide all the security, but the EOD, the actual explosive ordnance disposal guys were air force. And I was good friends with them because they were the other air force guys on this, on this base. And I hung out with them a lot and they're like, Hey LT, we're going to go blow some stuff up. You want to come? I'm like, yeah, I'm there. Let's do it. And the guy who was um, doing air quotes, the battle captain, he's the guy that sits in the operations center and kind of like is in charge of stuff that's going on. People Which means he never gets to go and do anything cool. He just tells the other people to do it. Right. He's the guy that's kind of making sure everything keeps flowing. And he's the same rank as me. And he goes, actually, we are like, you should probably stay here in case something else happens. And I'm like, dude, everything's handled. Nothing's going on. I'm going to kick off with these guys. I'll be back. And then, like, he looked at me like I was, like, like he was just flabbergasted. And so I got up. And yeah. I put, I put my armor back. My, yeah, I got, I got my stuff on and I left with the EOD guy. And then I get out of the building. And I take, like, five steps and the door slams open behind me. And that guy yells at me at the top of his lungs. Lieutenant Fleshman, you will not leave this base without my permission. And I turn around, and this guy is my peer, the same rank as me. And it, I like, so he came at me super professional. So my knee jerk reaction was to go super unprofessional. And so I turn around, <laughs> and I got into his face. And Why? I go, Why is that your knee jerk reaction? Just, just to be the bookend of it. And I got in his face, and I go, "Dude, what the f is your problem? Like, you're not the boss of me." We're not in the same service. I'm here supporting you. Like it just like labeled labeled all the reasons why he wasn't like he had absolutely no authority over me to do anything. And then I was like, so too bad. And I turned around and I got on the truck and I did leave the base. I went with the OD and it was wow. And, and nothing came of it because uh, he wasn't my boss. Air Force guys have too much ego, though. They would they would be like, no, this isn't happening. And they would start calling up the chain and get your convoy canceled or something. It was an army convoy. And on, like there was so many, there was so many background politic things. Like he just couldn't handle. Uh, all right, so I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much, but that specific guy got fired from that job like three days later for yeah. a myriad of other reasons. So that was that to me felt like super vindication. Like oh, I was totally right to, to cuss him out in his face. Well, that doesn't sound like you died. Uh, well, I I shouldn't have fought that fight. That, like that, I should have uh, I should have done the decision making that you did. Where is this worth it? Like, what are the ramifications of my decisions? No, I was young and I was brash and I, I picked a fight with a guy that I shouldn't have. That was a cool adventure you went on, though. You you ended up in Air Force Magazine. <laughs> that was a, that was a different one. Like, you, uh, I was in Air Force Magazine for blowing up the big pile. That one was they fired mortars into the mountains. They fired seven mortars in the mountains, but only saw six explosions. And so they had mm. to go find the one that didn't blow up. And they went to the EOD hut and they said, hey, we, only, we fired seven, but only saw six explosions. They said, okay. Well, go find it and then let us know when you found it. And so the army guy spent the day combing the mountains for... For uh, unexploded ordnance? That's like the size of a Pepsi bottle. Yeah, it, it, yeah. And, and they... Wow, that sounds like a needle in a haystack. 
Well, they found it, and then they showed oh, us wow. where it was. And I went with the EOD guys, and we got there, and they go, oh, you got to climb the mountain at this part. And like, it's another couple hundred meters up that way. And they're like, you want to come? I'm like, yeah, I want to come. So at one point, we had to, like, rock climb up a 10-foot little cliff, and then they put dynamite on top of an unexploded thing with a fuse. And he was explaining to me while he's doing it. So we're going to blow <laughs> this up. We're going to blow up this explosive with this explosive. But this explosive will, like, burn – like through your skin down to the bone. So when it blows up, there's going to be some smoke. If the smoke comes at us, then you need to run. I was like, wait, 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 define run. He means, he, he said, just get away from the smoke. Okay. All right. And when is this fuse going to go off? Well, I lit it now. So it's going to go off between two and three minutes. <laughs> and like, so, oh, so it's lit, lit now. And then we went and hid behind a rock a little ways away. And then we counted like the two minutes and then three minutes and then four minutes. I'm like, uh, what happens if this doesn't go off? Oh, we sit here for an hour to make sure that the fuse is actually out before we go check on it. Because, you know, there's some degree of error with the fuses. I'm like, what do you mean there's degrees of error with the fuses? And as I was saying that, it exploded. Wow. Awesome. That was a fun day, too. I love explosives with good comedic timing. <laughs> it was. It was good comedic timing. And the smoke did not drift towards us, so I did not have to run. Okay. Cool story, bro. I'm glad we went down that rabbit hole. <laughs> time for bad at english please and make me more informed about okay. the queen's english well this is definitely not the queen's english we're going to talk about some cockney rhyming slang today and a bit of british culture you always say that like i'm supposed to remember what it means like this is just like really lowbrow like yes stuff okay cockney rhyming slang is this very east london thing where you have where they're deliberately obscuring their meaning in slang and alternative usages of words. And in this case, they use a man's name in place of a word. So the man's name is Pete Tong. Pete Tong was a radio DJ from BBC Radio 1 back in the 1980s. It, basically, if you're in England, you know this guy. And if you're not, you do not. Oh, okay. So it's, it's another one of those layer cake of of idioms where you have to have like three different references straight before you even know what it means yes what i don't understand is why pete tong's name became synonymous with the word wrong and that's what they use it for and so i was sitting in the office one day and one of our projects had gone wrong and my my partner next to me said well this is all gone a bit pete tong i'm like what on earth does that mean? He's like, well, it means wrong. I'm like, why does it mean wrong? And he didn't know. Anyone that uses it wouldn't be able to tell you why Pete Tong means wrong. But in 2004, there was a British-Canadian mockumentary that came out called It's All Gone Pete Tong. And it's about a radio DJ that started to go deaf. That's, uh, yeah, there's too many layers. There's too many layers. Like you could have yeah. just said because it rhymes with wrong and everybody would have gone with that. Yeah, it rhymes with wrong. So this week I was flipping through the channels and I came across the movie Shaun of the Dead. Have you ever seen it? I have seen Shaun of the Dead. It is okay. a classic comedy that also pays homage to classic zombie movies. Yes. and But they also have layered in this very subtle British culture that if you didn't know, you might miss it. There's a scene when he realizes that a zombie, um, the kind of zombie outbreak that's like infectious that is transmitted by biting and so you get it and then you become a zombie within a few minutes and then you want to bite other people and then you bite them and they get it too and so soon the whole town are zombies um so he 
re- there's you know zombies banging at his windows, and he realizes he needs to go help people. And the first place he thinks he wants to go is to his mother's house. You remember this scene? I'm I'm remembering the plot line. I don't remember this scene specifically. Okay, so he goes to his mother's house, and just like he thought, there are zombies banging on the windows at his mother's house. And he says, Mom, why didn't you call the police? And you probably don't recall her answer, but her her answer was, well, I thought about it. And he stops asking her any other questions after that. And the thing that you're missing here about British culture is that that means something. For her to say she thought about calling the police... The British idea is that you're always okay. Like, even when things are really bad, you're still okay, and you don't want to, like, call the police because it would be bothersome. It would be like making a nuisance out of yourself. Yeah, okay, and, I, I, and, I get that. And so the, the joke was that there are literal zombie hordes trying to break into your house <laughs> and eat you, and that isn't worthy of calling the police. Well, just keep calm and carry on, right? Yes, exactly. And I think that this ethic derives back to that World War II era getting through the German bombing kind of uh, (laughs) campaign that the whole country went. They invested so deeply in creating a culture. It still exists today, and now it's throwaway humor in in zombie movies. I've seen that same kind of throwaway humor in some of the Monty Python stuff. Uh, I don't know if it was The Meaning of Life or one of those movies where they showed some British guys down in Africa – and one guy had his arm ripped off by a tiger while he was sleeping. And he's like sitting there like, yeah, so I don't know what happened. Must have come in through the night, the the bugger or whatever yeah, they say. It, and it was like no big deal. And he's like, oh, it's fine. I'll be no, I'll be fine. It's the same thing with the Black Knight that gets his arms and legs cut off in the classic scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's only a flesh wound. Yeah, it, it's no big deal. So later on in the movie, spoiler alert, his mom does get bitten by a zombie, but she hides it. And they eventually find out. And they confront her about it. Like, why didn't you tell us you'd been bitten by the zombie? And she says, well, I know how you are about these kinds of things. <laughs> like, what kinds of things, mom? Getting bit by a zombie and potentially becoming part of a horde? Like, this, you know, it, it's absurd that <laughs> she would be like, oh, I didn't want to upset you by the fact that I've been bitten by a zombie. Well, that was very considerate of her, honestly. So last week I told you the story, uh, sorry, last time we recorded, I told you the story of how I pulled up to the hospital and I got out and pressed the button on the emergency beacon that was in the parking lot. And they kind of answered the phone like, what are you doing calling this number? (laughs) Those emergency boxes don't exist in hospital parking lots in the UK, probably because no one would ever push the button. I'm surprised (laughs) you would go to the hospital in the UK. Do they have emergency rooms or do they have slight nuisance rooms? (laughs) So that's a little taste of British culture along with the... When things go a bit Pete Tong, you don't call 999. Here's a ridiculous uh, rabbit hole and parallel that I just drew while you're talking about this. There are a lot of similarities between a zombie outbreak and the COVID pandemic. Okay, go. So uh, we immediately try to isolate ourselves and lock ourselves away from our loved ones. Uh, being around other people is synonymous with like death. Uh, that that was that's basically it. I'm just saying that like a zombie outbreak is very much like this viral outbreak. We're just trying not to get the virus instead of being conveyed through bites. It's being conveyed through social gatherings. Hmm. Yeah, I guess so. That can be a nice satirical film here in a few years once it's gone away. You know, you, you can't make a satire film while you're still in the middle of something. 
I think they, I think Amazon made a movie about being in lockdown and every review I've seen of it is that it's horrible. Huh? There's a new Weezer album just came out and one of the songs on the album, I think he wrote about being in lockdown and I I, kind of dig it. I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. All the social butterflies are struggling and people keep calling, like my family are all very extroverted people and they're always calling and asking like, are you guys okay? Is everybody all right? Like, how are you guys coping? And we're, we're constantly having to reassure them. Not only are we fine, we're kind of enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my uh my in my semi-annual church general conference today, they were talking about how everyone's probably looking forward to going back to the way things were before. I thought, "Nah, I'm kind kind of like it." No, this is this is really nice. I, I enjoy working from home. I like seeing my family, no commute. I um, bet you guys having potlucks where you have to come and set everything up and you know put away the chairs. No, nah, it's okay. I'm all right without that. Well, it, uh, so my my boss is a social butterfly, like a hardcore social butterfly, and she's always like, "Oh, we could have everybody over to my house. We can do like a barbecue and hang out." And I'm always over here like, eh, "That sounds terrible. I don't want to go." <laughs> but you have to pretend like you do, but you don't want to pretend so hard that it changes her calculus. Yeah, you've got to you've got to do the thing where it's like, oh, that sounds fun, but we don't want to be a burden, and that seems too much. Oof, it we feels just like go, you're flirting with the edge there. Why don't we? We could all, instead like that sounds great. We should all definitely get together for a meal, but that should be at like a third party location, so there's no pressure on anybody. Like we go to a restaurant or something. Because here's the thing, Ben. I don't like going to restaurants with my coworkers either, but I can leave whenever I want. Okay, I got a different one for you. Be like, oh, that sounds nice. Um, but my kids have a lot of food allergies, so if you decide you want to do that, we'll need to talk. Ooh, is that <laughs> immediately? No, okay, so here's the problem is her kids also have food allergies. She'd be like, oh, let's compare notes. Uh, She'd be right, like super right. into it, bust out her three-ring notebook. So I'm imagining this scene from Ferris Bueller's Day Off where he's talking about how to get out of school without also getting sent to the doctor. And he's talking about how you're walking a fine line. You want to alarm your mom, but not so much that she sends you to the doctor because that's a no-go. This is, yeah, the same fine line exists in society with these lies that we have to tell ourselves to keep everything going. Yeah. I, I used to not have this. You don't want thing. her to think you, you hate her, but you also don't want her to set up the dinner date. Yes, but a younger version of me would have handled this differently. And I have an example where I did exactly that. Uh, I was flying a drone one night, and we were talking like it was the night before we were going to go on leave for a week for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Or Listeners, something. he's talking about an actual military drone with high explosives on it. Okay, go ahead. So we're 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 flying this, barely paying attention to it. We don't even know what what the heck is going on, and we're talking about going on vacation the next day. And the guy sitting next to me who's operating the, the center is like, "Oh, are you going to Albuquerque to get a flight?" Yes. As soon as we get off of work here, I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to drive to Albuquerque. I'm going to get on a flight home. And he goes, "Oh." I have a flight leaving from Albuquerque a little later on in the morning. Can I get a ride? And I looked no. at him and I thought for a second, I went, no. And he goes, no, no. He's like, um, I mean, is there a reason? And I was, I, I told him, I go, well, I don't really know you that well. And I don't want to spend three hours in the car with you. And like the third crew member that was in there just was dying laughing. <laughs> yeah, where you said what you meant instead of a, a proxy platitude. Exactly. Yeah, it's like uh, I just no, I, I don't. I don't want to ride in a car in my car for three hours with a pseudo stranger. Like that's just not something I ever want to do. Ever. Yeah, you sound like Sheldon on Big Bang Theory, but yeah. Like, because the acceptable thing in society is to be like, you're going to the same place. He's sitting right next to you. Of course, just just be a, just be a good guy. 
That but you're seat right was, about the opportunity cost being pretty high. If, if it turns out and in the first 30 minutes he's just like a, a jerk and you don't want to spend any time with him, you're stuck, man. Uh, there's all kinds of things. Like I outranked him and there's like I, I could justify it away a hundred different ways, but I just told him at, at the end of it, I told him like I, I'm just not a team player. And the, again, the third crew member, <laughs> he started calling up the other crews and like, you will not believe what just happened. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but that's one of the things I like about you. That's why I've kept you around so long. Oh, that, that yeah, okay. This is true. You have kept me around and not vice versa. Introverts don't have friends. They have extroverts that adopted them. So this reminds me of why I've kind of been kicking the can down the road on asking you about the circumstances surrounding your marriage. So if you don't mind, I think I think we've teased the, the listeners long enough, and it's time for me to interview you about marriage. Oh, man, like you're really going to have to pick some good questions because there are so many tangents and rabbit holes that tie into this this three-year process that was my marriage. Great. Okay, so let's go way back first. When you were a kid, what did you think marriage would be like as a grown-up? Wow, that is way back. Um, I'm going to put a footnote here, like right as we get started. Um, my wife already told me. Like I told her that this was going to be the topic of conversation today. Uh-huh. And then she said... To me, okay, just remember, everything that you get wrong about this story is going to be one drink that I take. And so I fully expect her to be really blasted by the end of this <laughs> podcast episode. Okay, go. So as a kid, I was, I'm was i a boy. I don't think about marriage. It's one of those things that like, yes, someday I will be married and I will have children. But you never think about the process from getting to point A to point B. You always just think about point B. Uh, so you didn't imagine yourself at like being married by the time you were a certain age or how many kids you thought you wanted to have or anything like that? Uh, I mean, I was young enough at that point. Like, I just thought I wanted to be another version of my dad. Like, oh, I'll be married someday and I'll work hard and I'll be successful and I'll have three kids. And that's what that because that's what you do. But then you get older and you realize that's not what life is about. And honestly, Ben, I hit um, I probably hit 13 or 14 and I completely st- stopped thinking about children and marriage and just started thinking about the girls and like everything else never entered the equation. <laughs> yeah. So when I interviewed you about your experience at the United States Air Force Academy, uh, we kind of talked offhandedly about it, but I want to talk about that now because the idea uh, about that age and time period, like the college age period of your life and being married is really at odds with like being at a military service academy and being in the military. So how did joining the Air Force and specifically going to the Academy kind of change your calculus about getting married? Um, well, I was very lonely, lacking female companionship for a majority of the time that I was there because it was an eight to one guy to girl ratio. So if you did have a girlfriend, which I, I did have a girlfriend for a couple of points at there at the Academy, I had one committed girlfriend for an entire uh, year. Uh, but you always, it's always in the back of your head, like there's seven other dudes that are probably better than you just waiting like it's just like packs of hyenas waiting to to pull you off of the of the the meat. That's a really bad. Uh, did it? I just drew. Did it get serious enough that you had thought about marriage? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I had uh, put a ring on layaway for this girl. Okay. Uh, which was a problem. Uh, but that goes like <laughs> there's all kinds of things wrong with that for lots of reasons that we're not going to talk about. But 
here's the thing. Like they always talk about at the Academy. One of the big things to do is you can book the chapel for a shotgun wedding right after graduation. Because while you're at the Academy, you are not allowed to be married at all. No dependents. Zero dependents allowed if you're attending the Air Force Academy. Is this a common cultural practice then that you guys are like a bunch of stretch back rubber bands and the second you, you, then everybody ties the knot as soon as you get out? Um, the, that's the, that's the non-cynical way of putting it. The cynical way of putting it is that all of the academy girls want to lock down the guys that they have before the guys realize how much more attractive women exist out in the real world. Wow. That is cynical. Isn't it though? That said, there's a, there, I mean, I'm sure there's many people that met at the academy and got married the day of graduation and are happy to this day. I have yet to meet one and I've met several that were married on graduation day at the academy that then split up when they realized, you know what? There's better people in the world. All right. So anecdotally, those kinds of marriages don't last. A- anecdotally and cynically. And I'm not the person to be asking about stuff like okay, that. Okay. So in an alternate universe, were you one of them? In an alternate universe, yes. I, I was ready to propose to that girl at the academy. Uh, she was fun. I mean, she was a great person, super smart and driven and motivated. Um, it just, you know. It was like every every time you have a, a, a relationship as a teenager. It's like having a teenage relationship is like having a teenage car. You're going to go way too fast, and you're probably going to wreck it without even realizing. <laughs> so what was your attitude toward marriage at this point? Like, what, what did it mean to you when you were putting a ring on layaway? What were you imagining? Not being lonely anymore. Okay. So yeah. it, it, to you, it was a... Uh, something you needed to, I don't know what to call it, uh, uh, some type of so ritual I'm gonna be, or I'm gonna be milestone? Super, I'm just going to be super vulnerable for a second then. And like, yeah, I'm an introverted person, which means it's difficult for me to open up and like let my feelings out and tell other people, especially the people that are closest to me in my life. But at the same time, I still feel the same like separation, anxiety, and loneliness that people feel all over the world. I'm just much, much worse at fixing my loneliness. So when I find myself in a relationship with somebody that I, that I like and the loneliness is gone, and even if that person is not perfect, all I know is that this emptiness is now filled, even if it's not all the way. And I just want it to stay that way. And so that's okay. I just didn't, I just didn't want to lose that. So you had a positive enough attitude toward marriage that you viewed it as the best way to solve the loneliness problem. I don't know if I had a healthy view on what marriage was or what it was supposed to be. I don't think anybody does until you've been married for some amount of time. Hmm. But um, I was I was not opposed to it. And I realized that this is a thing like, I don't know, the person at the time checked enough of the boxes that I had as a teenager. Like, yes, I could I could stay with this forever ad nauseum and it should be fine okay so he broke up before you graduated and then of course as happens when everyone leaves the academy you scatter out to the four corners of the earth yes i've never heard from her again ever and you ended up in virginia which is where you and i met um so talk about how you and your wife met ah so this ties in well with a story from earlier so, Ben, I was deployed to Afghanistan as a first lieutenant, and I didn't drink a single soda for the entire six months I was out there. And I spent two hours a day at the gym because there was nothing else to do. And boy, howdy, when I came back, I was ripped. I was. I in, remember. I was in the best shape of my life. Like, I had low body fat and very muscular. And, like, I, I was at peak good-looking attractiveness. Uh-huh. And, uh, enter the stage. While I was gone, the new 
HR person for our squadron, the new section commander. Uh, enter Nicole. Nicole. I'm not going to say her last name. Privacy reasons. It, whatever. Uh, it was Nicole. And, like, she was the new girl. Like, I had tried to date all of the other girls. And I was into girls. And so I... Uh, but we went... I remember you, me, and the, the guy George and Nicole, the four of us, we went out to lunch one time. Uh-huh. And you had told me offline that you thought George was sweet on Nicole, which I, to this day, I think he was. And But while we were eating, like, Nicole got up to go get a refill on her plate. And I, I asked George, like, straight. I'm like, hey, George, are you going to ask her out? And he, like, harumphed and, like, almost dropped his plate. And like, hur, 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 hur. Just very wishy-washy about it. And I looked him dead in the eye and I said, George, I'm going to go on leave for two weeks. I'm going to come back. If you have not asked her out, I am going to. And he's like, oh, well, that's not something. I mean, she's just a whatever. And the, I'm like, whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm just I'm just letting you know. And I will remember this conversation forever because when Nicole came back, we all you know shut up and everybody was super uncomfortable. And she goes, oh, were you guys talking about me? And I looked at Denny and I said, yeah, yeah, we were. I remember that moment. <laughs> I remember that moment. Wow. Okay. So anyway, okay. I left for leave. I came back. Nicole was still there. I saw George. I saw George walking down the hallway. He's like, George, did you ask out um, uh, um, uh, uh, Sarah? The, the section commander? And he goes, Sarah? And I go, the, the section commander, the HR person. He goes, Nicole? And I go, yeah, Nicole. Did you ask Nicole out? He goes, no. I go, okay, great. And I turned around and I walked straight to her office. And I asked her out. And wow. I think I think I've told that story before. Like, I have a different version in my head than what Nicole has in her head. Uh-huh. Uh, I thought well, it was very dapper. But this is and, this is from your perspective. This yeah, is your story. Exactly, my story. So I, I rode into the section on a horse, sword drawn, and I whisked her off her feet, and we rode off to the a glorious first date somewhere. Okay, so that was 2006-ish. So you'd been that on was, station for about that, a year. I, I, no, I asked her out um, 2008? The end of, yeah, yeah, 2008. Really? It was. Yes. No, I moved away from that base in 2008. In, in July of 2008, I moved out of that base. Then so it had to have been the year before because I, I knew her. I had a crash course in the dates from my uh, wife earlier right. today. <laughs> well, I, I get it. I get that she corrected you on this, but I left that base in July 2004 and I knew her. So she either got there in January of 2008 or the previous summer, depending on what time of year she arrived. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Like I, I, I can barely keep my own timeline in my head. Okay. So about then, in the Air Force, and for lay people that are listening, uh, there is very much an expectation that you will never stay at one base longer than three or four years, probably likely three. So there, as soon as you get to a new location, the clock starts ticking for you to move, and this is a problem for any romantic relationships you may form. Go yes, ahead. Because the Air Force is good about keeping people together about keeping married couples together if it is at all possible but they don't give two scraps about people that are sweet on each other or people that are dating or people that are super serious or even engaged you have to be yay verily by the book married by recognized by the federal government or or tough took us yeah i'm trying to imagine what it would be like for them to try to even cover you know other than actually married situations it would be a nightmare so, I, I understand yeah. why there's a hard cutoff. Yeah. So uh, Nicole and I had been going out at the point for 
six months. Like, I don't even know how long it was, Ben. Like, she snuck move in with me after, like, two or three months. It's relatively short for a couple of modern people in their early 20s. It was relatively short. Well, uh, I don't don't remember how long we were dating. It wasn't that long. It it was longer than you. I will say that. It was longer than you. I'm judging here. I honestly say it was like a year. I think we were going out for a year, but I can't confirm Uh, that. Um, But anyway, I got... Um, orders. I got the opportunity to transition into drones. And so I, it was clear writing was on the wall. My PCS timer is ticking down and it's coming up. And so then that kind of puts the question out there. That's permanent change of station. Yeah, sorry. I was going to move. I was going to I was going to be gone. And so if we wanted to continue to be together, we couldn't just be super serious. We had to be married. Right. Because you were going to leave and she was either going to stay there or she was going to get someplace, go someplace else. And then undoing that after it's already happened is way worse than... Uh, nigh on impossible. They'll tell you to wait until you both are ready to change again. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Let, let's go down that road a bit. So, let's imagine you decide you're romantic and you want to stay connected. And you also are thinking about getting married, but you don't actually want to tie the knot yet. So, you let the chips fall. You get sent to separate locations. And then you have a mandatory long-distance relationship for three years. Wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Just flat wouldn't have happened. Okay. So I assume you guys had some really heavy conversations during this period. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> what? You don't know either of us that well. Like, All right. So what What were the so, conversations like then? So what happened was like we knew – like we both knew. Like we're both smart people. We understood. Like so yeah, it looks like I'm going to be going to training. And then once training's over, they're going to assign me to a new base. Yep. Okay. That's all we need. Like the understanding existed that it's, it's, okay. it's poop or get off the pot time. Okay. Right. Okay. Now at this point in our relationship, I had already told her that I loved her and like, Ben, I, I loved Nicole like so much. It was scary. Like it freaked me out pretty good because I'd had my heart broken too many times, Ben. I made myself vulnerable, put myself out there too many times. And I was afraid of the feelings that I felt for Nicole. And I remember I accidentally said that I loved her the first time. It was a complete accident because <laughs> this is a tangent, but we were helping a guy asked me to help him move on the same day that he had me go with him to like a Tough Mudder obstacle course type run. Like, uh-huh. So one month he asked me if I could help him move on a certain date. I said, sure, no problem. And then another month he asked me, hey, you want to go do this team adventure race with me on this date? I'm like, yeah, sure. It wasn't until the month after that that he made me realize that they were the same day. Dope. So I had to run an adventure That race. sounds exhausting. It was exhausting. And this is the worst part, Ben. Uh, people, you listen to me right now. Like, there is a part, uh, a specific part in Hades for people that do this. He invited me to his house to help him move. And I got to his house to help him move, and not one thing was packed. Oh, uh, that's he had the worst. A, he had a stack of broken down boxes and an apartment that was just being lived in right up until that moment. Oh, uh. That's the worst. And then his, him and his girlfriend proceeded to argue and complain at each other the whole time. And so I took liberties, Ben. I built a box and I would go to a shelf and just do that thing you see on TV where you just take all the crap and sweep it into the box. Like, I don't care. This isn't mine. And this guy should have packed it himself anyway. And then close it up and throw it, like physically throw it into somebody's vehicle that was there to help him that also got roped into this nonsense. Yeah. Why was he moving? He wasn't leaving. No, he wasn't he just leaving. changing he was, apartments. He's changing apartments. Okay. And so we were making a trip from his old apartment to his new apartment. Nicole was there helping him move as well because I don't know why. And our my car was full of all of his stuff. 
And we were driving and she was complaining the same way that I was complaining about uh, about both of them. Like, they didn't even pack any of their stuff. Like, they're in there just complaining and arguing with each other while all these people they invited over are doing all their work. And it's so inconsiderate. And I was laughing so hard at one point. I was going, I love you. <laughs> and Ben, it went dead silent in that car for the next, like, until we got to where we were going. And we she wasn't just, ready for you to say that yet. Huh? And I wasn't ready. I didn't realize that I was ready to say it either. And we just both pretended it didn't happen until I actually Aww. said it to her a couple weeks later. Okay. So anyway. I really like Nicole, yeah. and I knew that I probably wanted her to be in my life forever. And so then Okay, I... and the Air Force is forcing your hand on timing. Now, yes. we've kind of talked about how you just saw it as a way to fill the loneliness hole, and you obviously loved her a great deal. Now, another factor that fits into all this is kind of like the family culture surrounding the, the, the social ritual of forming a new, a new marriage. So talk about your family situation and her family situation in relation to your marriage. Um, oh, you're, you're driving me down a specific path. Okay. So at some point, um, I recognized that I, like, I want to marry this girl and I want her to be with me. And then uh, I went out and I got the ring. And that's, that's a whole story in itself because she swears up and down that she helped pick that ring with me. And I swear up and down that no, she had nothing to do with it. I picked it in a vacuum. Anyway... Like she, during this time, she had scheduled for her parents to come out and visit her in Virginia. And I'm like, oh, well, that's great. This is going to be the first time that I've ever met uh, my now in-laws, uh, Jay and Kim. And I thought, well, I can hold off until then and I can do the gentlemanly thing, right? The, the, the traditional thing that you do. Right. Ask her father for permission and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, I don't think Jay or Kim are listeners. But I don't I, I don't want to disparage or like my version of this story is very, very jaded and one sided and not fair to their perspective at all. I was take like they had, they didn't know me from Adam. And the like in within the first 24 hours of them meeting me, I asked if I could take their daughter away from them forever. Got it. it were, were they kind of tuned into the Air Force side of this? Kind of. Um, my father in law was in the Navy as a reservist for the longest time. So he understood okay. kind of the onus and like how it works and that sort of thing. Okay. But at the same time, is that a great excuse to like to, to get married and make these kinds of life altering decisions? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on who you are. Yeah. So did, did you do it? Did you take, did you grab the bull by the horns or did you chicken out? Oh no, I have Ben. Who are you talking to? Of course uh, I did. I waited until my wife was off doing something else. And they were both there, and I gave my little spiel. I'm like, listen, I, I don't know if I've conveyed this, but uh, I love your daughter, like, incredibly. Like, it scares me how much I'm in love with her, and I want her to be a part of my life uh, forever. And so, like, I, I, I'm planning on proposing to her, and I wanted to know if that was all right with you, or some such nonsense like that, right? Okay. I, had, I did the whole thing. It was not well accepted, I'm just going to put it that way. Um, I did yeah. not get a firm yes or a no. I got a heavily implied no. But okay. um, it was one of those things where – so I felt bad about it. Like I felt bad enough to the point where a couple of days like it was really hanging over me. Like, well, that, was, that did not go well and they do not want me doing this. But my brother said something to me that made me really – really brought me out of that funk. And he said, you know, when you ask a man if you can marry his daughter, there's only two answers. Yes and everything else. Right. I was like, you know what? That's true. That's absolutely true. Like, there, 
yeah. So anyway, like I had my own little path of journey and discovery or whatever, but the end result was going to be the same either way. I asked Nicole to marry me. She said yes. And then we got married. Okay, I don't know well, why this is. I don't know how we're going to fill the rest of the podcast. That's the whole story. No, 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 no. That is not what happened at all. So, <laughs> okay, normally if you make that decision, there's an engagement period. And, and you may decide like, okay, we want to get married in June so it can be outdoors or that we can go to this chapel or we like this particular season or something like that. But with the Air Force breathing down your neck, you had a timeline. You had a deadline, which probably wasn't enough to conduct a socially acceptable wedding for two families that live over a thousand miles away. So, uh, yeah, they live a thousand miles away from each other and then multiple thousands of miles away from where we were at that moment. Right. So uh, the way this was going to work is I was going to be sent to training and I was going to be on consistent assignments elsewhere for a year. The way that you're gone for six months, I was going to be gone for a year at various locations, learning all the skills I needed for my new career field. And so that gave us a little more time, but not much because I, I wasn't going to be there. So um, I engage, I proposed to her. In February of 2009, Nine. it had yeah. been 2009, and then we were married. It, and this is the thing: is the air, like you said, the Air Force is breathing down our neck. So, yes, we didn't really have time to coordinate a big wedding. We didn't have time to get everybody on board. We hadn't really known each other long enough from the perspective of our parents at that point. So, we decided that we were just going to go get the paperwork done, and then we'll do the big ceremony later. Okay, this is the proverbial justice of the peace. Uh, this is the literal Just justice go, of go, the peace. Go down to the courthouse we, and get signatures on a paper. We called the courthouse. You know, we scheduled an appointment with a justice of the peace at the at the courthouse on a Saturday morning. It was a very lovely day. Um, our friend Cecil, he came to witness. He was the only witness, and he took pictures. Wow. So our first wedding was three people and a justice of the peace. And we have some lovely photos of it. Um, and that was, was, that was, was this a rash decision? This was not a rash decision. No, this was, okay. we, we, we knew what we were doing. This was a, 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 a planned approach to, we're going to do this. We're going to keep it quiet just so we can be stationed together. And then once everything settles out, we can plan the big wedding for the family and everybody can come and do the whole thing. Okay. So you needed to have the officially married paperwork in hand, but you still wanted the family to have a chance to come and show up and show that they support the decision you were making and participate. Absolutely. Because weddings are, weddings are fantastic. Weddings are like prom for adults. It's the only time that you get to dress up fancy, drink to excess, and just really let loose. Like weddings are the best. Um, and so like we, we didn't want to take that away from anybody. And like again, we're, with our with parents and family, there are people that are mostly vested in their children getting married. And while we at the time intellectually understood that, we we're like, we're just married. It's our life. What's the big deal? Well, it's not about us, so it's about other people. So the, the whole thing. So we were married uh, in early April of 2009. And then uh, once we had that figured out and we went to the Air Force, the Air Force confirmed us as married in the system, and so we were going to be stationed together and everything. Then we started planning what was going to be the wedding for, you know, posterity. And we realized that was going to be expensive. Ben, I don't know if you've priced a wedding lately. But, uh... <laughs> Funny you should mention that. <laughs> Actually, I have. Weddings are, are expensive, especially if you want to do it right, which you don't want to cheap out on like major things like that. And so we were trying to figure out, okay, where can we do it so that both families can come and that we both have really big families and a lot of people that are going to want to be there. 
And it was about this time when we were looking at spending upwards of forty to fifty thousand dollars on a, a, a ceremony that would not include like anything for us. Like it was going to be work, and then no no honeymoon or anything after that. Just just go back to your life. Yeah. Um, one of my wife's coworkers mentioned that they had gotten married in Jamaica at an all inclusive resort, and it was wonderful and fantastic and comparatively super cheap. And so we started looking into it as a viable option like oh well we can get married in the bahamas for half of what we're planning on spending in the states and we get a week in paradise and so like you start doing that math and here, here's the thing ben i'm gonna offend a lot of people with this but we both had very large families and both of us did not want most of them to come but you, <laughs> but you have to invite everybody it's i mean yeah. that's just what you do no, this is just like you were talking about not wanting to take the car, three-hour car ride with the guy. You know, you don't want to look him right in the eye and tell him <laughs> you don't want to come. So you just say, oh, well, uh, you know, and you come up with a story that will filter him out without actually offending him. So we invited everybody, everybody that could possibly have wanted to come to our wedding. We invited them to our wedding in a foreign country. Passports uh-huh. included, that's on you. And surprisingly... Not many people, like the people that we wanted to be there were there. And that was about it. And it was, it was, it was lovely. And we had a week in paradise and all right, just for everybody's notion, this was fun. Normally, if you have a group deal at like a hotel, the more people that come into the group, the cheaper it gets for everybody else, right? That's normally how it works. Right. This place was the opposite. The more people that came as a part of our event, the better our accommodations got for no extra charge. (laughs) <laughs> so all oh, your guests were subsidizing your accommodation yes they were ben we booked a normal hotel room and by the time everybody signed on to the wedding they gave us a private suite with a full-time butler it what? was so amazing like i could i could rave about how awesome that experience was for hours it was i he handed me a phone and said my number I'm, I am speed dial number one. You don't need any other numbers. You need something, you call me and it gets done. And I swear that guy must have been stalking us because we would leave for five minutes to go get a drink and come back and the beds would be turned down and he would be brewing a bubble bath and we never saw him. Like he was some kind of amazing ghost that was just awesome. taking care of everything. It was so great. All right. I know this is supposed to be an interview, but I have to interject a little bit here. So when you when you sent me the invitation... Uh, to this destination wedding, my initial instinct was, oh, this probably isn't going to work. Like, I don't have a passport. My wife won't be able to wait, make it. But then then the other part set in, and that is, Josh is really important part important to me. And this Aww. is a big deal. It was a big deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a big deal that he's getting married and making this decision that's going to affect the rest of his life. I didn't imagine 20 years down the road and we'd still be friends, but I did know that that I wanted the kind of relationships in my life where you go to each other's weddings kind of thing. And so the fact I was flattered by the fact that you invited me and I'm like, I set about it with like, how can I make this happen? So I did the paperwork from my passport and I talked to my wife and that was a big hurdle because to tell your, to tell your spouse and mother of your six children that you want to go to a tropical island and you want them to stay <laughs> home alone and take care of the children, is kind of a non-starter. That's a tough sell. Yes, you burned a lot of uh, a lot of currency with that one. Yeah, so we were living in Colorado at the time, and and I tried to find a way to get her to come with me, but it just wasn't shaping up. You know, we just had, you know, we, she may have been pregnant with our sixth child, or 
whatever. It was just wasn't looking. Yeah, that's right. Our sixth child was, she was pregnant with our sixth child at the time. <laughs> so um, she was like, you know what, go. She knew you and she knew that our relationship was important and she supported me and I decided to go. And so I ended up being just like free married guy all by himself in the Bahamas for this thing. Now, you, it's funny because you didn't know some of the things that happened while I was there because I, I wanted to be there and support you, but I also knew that this was about you and Nicole and you didn't, weren't really going to be able to spend time with me. So I kind of knew that other than like spend a little bit of time with your brother and your dad who had just met and, and stuff like that, that this, there wasn't going to be a lot there for me as far as I didn't know any of your family. I didn't know any of her family. I was there as your friend. So I get there and they're working out the accommodations. They're like, uh, we don't really have anywhere to put you because you aren't really part of anyone's family, but but uh, we're going to room you with the bride's sister. Oh, Stacy, yay. <laughs> who, so they had an extra room and they put me in the room with a single girl who was still in college. And I was like, I guess that's okay. Like, I, uh, we could probably work it out. And so I ended up in the same room as the bride's sister. Uh, I love Stacy to death, but you have to get used to her kind of personality. Yeah, there weren't any conflicts or problems, but I, I you never knew that happened. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. I think you were just there. And I never really thought about it. Like I was just so blissfully happy the whole time I was there. Yeah. But oh, it was fantastic. We did have fun. There was a couple of times we got to hang out through the yeah. through a couple of days. Uh, yeah, I remember so, we all got, well, most of us got pretty drunk and went to a, what was it? A song impersonation contest or something. Yeah, there was, it was a, um, a karaoke bar where they were doing like a yeah song impersonation contest. Now your brother-in-law is was like a professional vocal performance major or something like that. He has his master's degree in performance and has worked professionally on operas in the past as, in in a singing role. Yeah, so he was really going for it. And I remember he locked horns with this one dude, just this weird-looking, skinny, almost Hollywood-looking dude, and they started going back and forth. And I should have gotten suspicious when, like, for the second or third time in a row, uh, Jason's <laughs> competitor chose a Bon Jovi song. Yeah. And he got up there, and he grabbed the mic, and he did, like, a choreographed dance, and he just threw down. And I thought, man, that could be John Bon Jovi himself. He's so good at this. <laughs> and it turns and it came, out, yeah, it turns out that the guy was a professional, full-time John Bon Jovi impersonator for his career. in Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah, like that's what he did. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, no know, fair. Ben, I had a lot of alcohol that night, and there are parts of it that I don't remember. <laughs> but I remember my brother-in-law Jason getting up on that stage and doing a rendition of "Summer Wind." That brought tears to my eyes. Yeah. Oh, man. He brought down the house. If, if that other guy hadn't been a professional Bon Jovi singer singing Bon Jovi songs, I think Jason would have owned the night. Oh, definitely. Definitely. That was those were okay. times. So we were at the wait, resort, wait, 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 be beautiful wait. tropical island, white sand beaches, blue water. We never even talked about how I got there and the problems with that. What? Oh, there was – I wasn't – I almost didn't make it. So I was in training to be a drone pilot at the time. And so I was in Vegas – training to be a drone pilot and like i had a deadline like i knew what date the wedding was and i knew what date my flight was it was booked months in advance and i kept telling and i assume you got your chain of command to all agree to like you can go to your wedding the first day i was there they laid out the curriculum and the plan and they said you all will be done on or about this day and it was like a week before i was supposed to fly out i'm like perfect no problems but i did make my leadership know like hey 
I'm going to get married. I know that's not the Air Force's problem or anything. It should line up with the timelines, but like I'm just making you aware that if there's some wiggle room in the schedule, I would very much like some priority, and I think I have a good enough reason for it. Um, well, anyway, they kept getting... like The final check ride that I had to take could not be simulated. It had to be a live plane. And we check right is like you're in a simulator doing the actual flight stuff for yes, a drone. Like you are controlling the plane, doing the plane. And procedure. there's someone supervising you, making sure you do it yes, right. There is an instructor pilot with thousands of hours in that aircraft, like a super expert on everything that could possibly happen, and they are throwing scenarios at you. Okay, if this happens, what do you do? And then you run through the procedures and you just demonstrate your proficiency and your understanding of the of the aircraft. Okay. It has to be done live. It cannot be simulated. So we had to do it when one of the planes was flying. Well, we were weathered down. Like the weather was bad and outside of the range of the capacity of the aircraft for like two weeks straight. And so Whoa. everything kept getting pushed to the right. Like it kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And I kept telling my leadership, hey, this is like, I know I can't control the weather, but like when it opens back up, I really need to be out there. Ben, I, there's a lot of details to this story, but I, I had, did not know any of this. I had to change. So, my, so your your marriage is flashing before your eyes. You got all these people. It was done and paid for at the time. Tens of thousands oh, of dollars man. invested. Ben, I had to change my flight three times, and I had to eat the cost all three times. I paid for three flights from Las Vegas to the Bahamas because it kept getting pushed, and I had to keep changing the flight. And they I just did not know any of this. It was the point where I. You almost missed your own wedding because of the military. It was so tight that I, when I finally did get to take my check ride, I took the first one when the weather got clear. I took the check ride in the morning. In the afternoon, I was out processing the squadron. And in the evening, I was getting on the red eye flight to catch my connection to the Bahamas. Wow. Nicole, you're you're me- Sergeant Bilko. This was his <laughs> character. Yeah, Nicole like met late me, to his own wedding because of the military. Nicole met me at the airport for our connecting flight, and I she had must been, have been so stressed out. I had been awake for thirty six hours at that point, and like I was, I was out of it. <laughs> Holy crap! Wow. Okay, so we got there, and I met your family, who I love, and we, you know, I, I, I was enjoying just the relaxation and the tropicalness and stuff. And you did something, uh, I guess, I just didn't know was one of the traditions associated with the wedding, and you went out for dinner with just the, the groomsmen and your dad and brothers and stuff like that. And uh, brother, and we, uh, you gave us all a gift. And, um, <laughs> do you remember what it was? I do remember what it was. Yes. I put a lot of time and effort into this gift and it was appreciated. Uh, so it was a DVD that you'd burned with a bunch of emulators of classic Nintendo software. And you gave us a USB Nintendo controller. So all you had to do was pop plug the controller in a USB port and pop the disc in any PC and then you could play classic Nintendo games. So this was back when DVDs were a thing. Like there was no USB thumb drives and they were It was the mixtape of the mid 2000s. <laughs> yes, um, I thought that was appropriate for my groomsman gift. I don't think my dad has ever used his. It but... was great. I still have it and I love it. So you must have done it for me. <laughs> I, uh, my, I think my brother like played with it. Like he was in college. No, no, he wasn't. He was married at the time too. He got married before me. So no, I don't know why he got one, but he got it and he said he appreciated it. I'm sure it's in a well, drawer somewhere. I appreciated the thought and effort that went into that. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Okay, so you know, they I got there and they got me fitted for like this tan suit with the open collar and, and nice shoes and stuff. I and actually, then we got all dressed up. I have a story about the open collar. <laughs> 
Because as part of our wedding planning, we were going around planning what we were going to wear. And Nicole, of course, had to do the girl thing where she had to have her whole female family weigh in on the dress that she was going to get. And it was you know expensive. And do like there's a whole thing about the dress. As a dude, I, I rented a suit. She bought a thousand dollar dress. I rented a suit right. for a day. And this is the thing is we were for the longest time we were struggling with ties. Like we knew it was going to be tropical. So we're going to have everybody wear khaki and it'll be cool. But what colors gonna is the are the ties gonna be to match like the 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 mood and what what colors is she gonna have on and all that kind of thing and we were at department stores shopping for ties, and the last department store we went to, there was a lady that came up to us as we we're digging through all their ties and she said oh hi is there anything I can help you with like yeah we're thinking about like this with this kind of a color and she's like oh what's this for like oh it's gonna be for our wedding and she goes oh no 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 you can't wear that color tie for a wedding that's just atrocious you can't do it. And then we were both kind of like super put off by that. And we like she helped us for a couple more minutes, but then we left. And we were both so mad at that woman, me and Nicole both. We were like, you know what? <laughs> Screw her. We're not going to wear ties at the wedding. And Nicole's like, yeah, no ties. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And so that's why we did open collar for the guys at the wedding. Awesome. Just out of pure yeah. spite for a random minimum wage worker. Take okay. that, society. Well, for our listeners, I'll post a photo of us on the beach in the Bahamas in khaki suits with no ties uh, so you can see about Josh's wedding. Uh, I don't have so, a beard in those photos. and I look atrocious. I look terrible. No, you don't. You oh. look happy, just like you said. Yeah, so it's weird. been 10 years now that you guys have been married, I guess. 10 or 11. I can't keep it straight. 11? Because here's the thing. Yeah. So oh, this is 11 another, this month. This is another problem. This was a huge dramatic problem issue in my family because my brother's wife was an accountant at the time like and who cares about accountants i don't care about accountants screw those guys taxis and whatever <laughs> that was that was 10 years ago and i am now a tax accountant so i know exactly what she was going through but yeah our wedding was set for oh our wedding was day. set for like 11 april 2010 so yeah you're probably a lot more sensitive to that problem now yeah like if somebody, if you called me and say, hey, let's go do this totally amazing once-in-a-lifetime opportunity on April 11th, I'm going to be like, there's absolutely no chance that I can do that. I will lose my job. I can't remember if she made it or not. She did not. My This was yeah. a huge problem in my family. They, oh, they, sorry, Stephanie. Stephanie, I, I am truly sorry. Here's the thing. This The reason I did it is, one, yes, when people tell me to do something, I immediately want to do the opposite because that's that's just part of who I am. I'm stubborn. And that's why you guys didn't wear ties. It was nothing personal. <laughs> But the second thing, this is this is the bigger one to me. Um, that was the day we got married was um, exactly one year after we had gotten actually married at the Justice of the Peace. And so by doing it on I remember that day, you telling me this. We, we got to keep the same anniversary. And, yeah. so, and now it's also a little fun as a dad joke because every year for the anniversary, it's like, oh, we've been married for nine or ten years. And it's funny because... <laughs> I say that and people laugh like, oh, haha, he doesn't really know. So when really you said know. 10 or 11 just now. Yeah, it it, is, it, or, it's, it's 10 yeah, or 11. It's both. Depending on who you're counting from, yes. And so it is, it is a dad joke as well as being reality. All right. So we've told the story of how you, what you thought about marriage and the circumstances surrounding your wedding and being married and stuff. So you've been married now for 10 or 11 years. Let's wax philosophical and kind of wrap it up. What? What what is your attitude toward marriage now? How do you feel about it now? I, I mean, I feel uh, it, it, it's such an important thing in your life. Like it's just the most important thing in my life is my marriage to Nicole. And 
she has she makes me want to be a better person. That sounds like such a cliche, but like when I'm making decisions, when I'm sitting around, it's like I could have something fatty and gross to eat for lunch for myself right now. But then I think like, but then I'm going to be just slightly fatter for my wife. And so then I get up and or eat a salad or eat a real food or whatever. Like every little decision just factors into I want to be better than I am currently because I want to be the person that she thinks I am. Um, I don't want to get – you're going to make me get super mushy and emotional. About I, I love that, Josh. <laughs> I, you know, you just gave one tiny example, but it was so profound what you just said about how tying your life to another human – affects every part of your own life, probably in ways you didn't even anticipate before you made that decision. Uh, we talk, I talk a lot about how as a younger person, I was very, I was very angry. I was very aggressive. I was very like draw the sword and burn the bridges kind of a person. And that has all been very tempered because of the patience and understanding and, and, and just the sheer willpower and stubbornness of Nicole explaining to me that that isn't necessarily always the best way to approach problems. And it has taken me almost the entire time that we've been married for me to finally realize what she's been saying to me the entire time is that just because you think you're right doesn't give you the, the, the justification to draw the flaming sword and go burning everything to the ground. Like there's like, you can be right and still handle it in a way that doesn't make enemies or doesn't uh, destroy relationships. So yeah. I, I just, Everything about the fact of being with her has made me a better person, and it makes me want to continue to grow and be better. That's great. So along with your marriage came children. We can have another discussion where we actually talk about all of that. But specifically relating to have children, what do you feel like you're teaching your children about what it means to be married? And, you know, have you done it by precept as well as example? Kind of like I, I, I'm very cognizant of like when I was a kid, I understood and my understanding of what a committed long term relationship between two people was, was directly informed by how my mother and father interacted on a daily basis. From what I see, your parents, they look to me to be a good example of what I think of as a good marriage. People who love and, and appreciate and enjoy each other's company. I mean, and for that's absolutely true. Um. It, so just being aware of that fact, like drives decision making, it drives the things we talk about. And so I'm very cognizant of trying to display the behavior that I want my kids to see because they're always watching. Listeners, they're always watching. They're always there. Mm. Like every, you can't get away with anything with kids in the house. But then also in a very deliberate way, explaining things to them when stuff comes down. Like if we make a ruling or if somebody, if one parent says this, another parent says something different. We make it a point to sit in front of them and discuss why we said the different things or and or chastise the child for how dare you go ask mommy after you ask daddy, et cetera, et cetera. But like the I guess the biggest lessons that we're trying to impart through our behavior and through what we're saying is that at its core, the very first thing, uh, I guess the very first thing in a, in a married relationship is the love, the genuine love for the other person. And then the second thing has to be mutual respect. Like you have to respect each other as individuals, as people, as like respect their intelligence, respect their opinions, all of it. I love it. All right. So how old is Jane now? She's six years old. Jane is six. Yes. It took me a second. All right. So let's assume she goes off to college when she's 18. So let's let's project into the forward, forward into the future. 12 years. Um, your, your youngest child's getting ready to leave the nest. Uh, where time. do you... 
where do you see your marriage then once, you know, you're transitioning from having been partners in parenthood to now being a married couple with an empty nest? I've also mentioned this on the podcast before. My career and my life has so dramatically changed every five years that I try not to make these kinds of long-term forecasts. Mm -hmm. But I will say that through all of that, through all of my wildest imaginings, it's always me and Nicole together. And we're fantasizing about these days because we will finally have the time and the freedom and the cap and the capacity. Like as our kids get older, we'll be able to go out and do stuff. Like I am looking forward to the day that I can tell Carter, Hey, me and mommy are going on a date. Watch your sister. We'll be back in four hours. Don't it's, burn the house. Close. Down. We're, we're, yeah. we're, I mean, he's nine, three or four more years probably before I'm comfortable doing that. But yes, that will be fantastic. And then there'll be another scale where we can leave the house for multiple days. Maybe I don't know. There's always this, it feels like when you're at home with your kids, there is, and you have your relationship with your wife, but it feels different. Because I remember not too long ago, uh, this was uh, either last year, or the, no, it must have been the year before, in 2018, we were invited to Cecil's wedding. Cecil, the man who, uh, who witnessed our Your wedding, only witness of your justice of the peace. The only witness of, of our justice of the peace wedding invited us to witness and be the signers on his wedding to, to his fiance back in 2018. Huh. And so he invited us to Florida. Uh, for the wedding and we said you know what let's do it and like just total i don't know if it was total but like just like uh spur, spur of the, the moment. moment thank you spur of the moment decision book the flights got the babysitters and we went to miami and we spent those uh four days in miami yes we we hung out with cecil and saw his wife and met and went to the wedding and all of that stuff it was like problem for for adults but also just when you're out with your spouse without the children the relationship is a little bit different it was. It felt like we were both like less worried about the responsibilities. We like we didn't have the mm. the adulting stuff to have to worry about. We we're both just a little more free, a little more easygoing. Uh, I, we had we just had a ton of fun, and you could feel it as we came back, and it all like the reality set. In. It's like okay, we got to pick everything back up. Where's the laundry at? What's what's the grocery situation? Just all the little yeah. things that start to to bog it down. Yeah, you, you got a bit misty there and sounded just like I did after my wife came and visited me for five days here in Florida, just like that. You felt the, the, the difference in the relationship. Yeah, just how much we appreciate and admire and respect each other and enjoy being around each other. So you, that's something to look forward to. You have to make those, you have to make the time just to remind yourself, if nothing else, that yes, this person is the, I made the right choice. Yeah, well, good. Well, thanks, Josh, for telling me all that about your thoughts and circumstances surrounding your marriage. You got any last thoughts before we uh, close it up? Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna kick some stand in your face. And my my philosophy on marriage now is uh, a quote from City Slickers: "Is how can you possibly decide which cereal you're gonna eat at breakfast every day of your life <laughs> if you haven't had every cereal out of the sampler powder first? Like I would not have unless, been unless the Air Force is breathing down your neck saying you pick a cereal right now, but or at, you can't have any of those. But then at that time, I had dated enough women to have uh, I've, I had built the checklist. These are the things that I value in a long term relationship, and these are the things that I don't. And so, like, yeah. when, like that's like when I was with Nicole, and I said I like I loved her so much, it scared me. It's it, that is exactly what it was. Like she checked every box and I started to feel the walls closing like, holy crap, this is it. This is the end. Like I have found the one and I'm and dating is over. 
Yeah, but you didn't do that thing that guys do sometimes where they resist it. Be like, nobody's going to tie me down, take away my freedom. I, You're like, no, I want to fill the lonely hole. No, I, I, I kind of resisted. Like, I, I, I was in denial for a while about how much I loved mm. her. But I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's that's the other thing. Like when all the young kids would tell or ask me, it's like, "Well, how did you know that she was the one?" And I, I did that super cliche thing that you do, where you turn your head slowly at them. You go, "You'll know," and you give them a sly <laughs> smile and a wink. <laughs> and that's the thing is yeah. is you will know because if this person is right for you, it won't. It'll be effortless. You'll just like they you you want to be their friend forever. Hmm. Nice. That makes me happy. I'm 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 happy for you, Josh. I'm happy you're still happily married twelve years later. Uh, you're such a relationship. Ten, ten or eleven so, years later. So savvy uh, you. Well, let me change the subject a little bit. So you know that um, my bachelor's and my master's are both in education, and we haven't talked a lot about education on the podcast, but I want to a little. And I listened to a podcast this week that got me really excited about it. So I want you to listen to it too, and I'll give the opportunity to our listeners, and and this can be what we talk about next time. Okay. So. Uh, one of the authors of Freakonomics, uh, Dr. Stephen Levitt, who's a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, has a podcast now called People I Mostly Admire. And on episode 22, he interviewed Sal Khan, who is the founder and CEO of Khan Academy, which is a well-known online website that provides educational videos for free. It's a nonprofit organization that's been around since like the dawn of YouTube. He's like, hey, I made these videos for, my, for tutoring my nephew, but I'll just put them out there on the internet. And since then, it's just grown and grown and grown. And he's still stayed nonprofit and free. But the things he's doing have the potential to revolutionize education. So I'll put a link in the show notes and I'll send it to you. If you want to listen to this, it's just 45 minutes. Uh, and, and a lot of the ideas they cover in there are the kind of ideas I want to talk about next time. I think we're due for a serious conversation about education because great. I think the current circumstances that the country is in, we had a great opportunity to take a hard look at the education system. And I think we're exactly, I think we're failing in recognizing the opportunity for change. Yes. That's what I want to talk about. So yeah. Excellent. All right. And then one other thing I want to talk about is that if you remember a couple episodes back, I had made an attempt to get a custom memorabilia for the podcast of like a Bad at Magic Dice D20, and I kind of failed in getting it. So I took it down a different route, but I decided not to tell the audience until it was actually successful. Which is always a good like thing to do. Like Make sure you actually have the thing before you start promising it to people. Yeah. So if you, uh, so the thing I decided to do is kind of a mashup of the fact that you and I were both in the military with the ideas and art and style of the podcast. Now, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but our logo, which is excellent, was designed by my little sister, Jonica. And I remember just giving her a few ideas and kind of telling her what I wanted. And she sent it back to me. And she's like, this is what I was thinking, you know, maybe something like this. I'm like, are you kidding? This is perfect. And... <laughs> Never looked back. You know, she made a few iterations of it and stuff, but it just kind of captured everything great about the podcast. And now when I think of it, I look at the podcast. And if you go browse around on podcast players and look at other people's logos, ours is better. Like, it's really good. <laughs> so I loved it so much, I wanted to get some memorabilia that would capture it. And I m mashed it up with the idea of a military challenge coin. 
Uh, and to give you like the 30-second version of this, the military challenge coin is a, is a tradition that's alive and well in most branches of the military, as far as I know, where basically a commander or an organization will get a little round metal disc that's, you know, heavier than the heaviest silver dollar you've seen. They're usually made out of like pewters or tin or something. They're super I don't know. oversized, very thick. Like they're, they're, they're a coin only in name. Like they're, they're like medallions almost. Yeah, they're like medallions, and they're custom stamped with whatever it is they represent. And then the only way to get one is to kind of be recognized for a good accomplishment. And then a person who's had one made that represents their command authority or their unit will give it to you in recognition for an accomplishment. And then with it, there's a lot of hazing, like you're supposed to always have one on you, and you can't buy it yourself. It has to have been given to you by someone else. And then if someone shows theirs, then you have to show yours as well, and those kinds of things. We don't need to worry about all that. But I got a challenge coin made of the podcast and i have already sent them out to our patreon supporters and if you would also like one you can show go to patreon.com slash magic and support the show and i'll send you one as well and if you'd like to see what they look like i'll put a photo in the the facebook album uh it's on patreon.com and you can take a look and if you want to support the show and you want a beautiful emblem of the show's logo go ahead and sign up on patreon that is outstanding there's no other word for it like I, I so challenge coins are a real thing you can look it up on the internet but i carried one with me every second that i was active duty in the military i have since stopped doing that because it's a ridiculous waste of my pocket space but ben i promise you i'm gonna carry around my bad at magic coin for the rest of time like this is a awesome. thing that i i will not separate from okay because so, i carry mine with me all the time now too all right uh, that's that's all I want to say about that. The other thing we wanted to ask you for, listeners, is that we feel like we have a good thing going here and we love the relationship we have with you guys and we'd like to be able to have the chance to bring it to other people. And there's something you can do that's free and it only takes a sec that would really help get this podcast in front of other people that would be interested in it and just haven't stumbled across it yet. And that is uh, to review us on your podcast player of choice. If you're still listening to us, like two plus hours into us discussing my marriage and how Ben got a city to fix a sidewalk. I mean, come on, you're obviously super into us. Take those couple of seconds, open your phone and hit the five stars on the thing. That would really help us out and we would very much appreciate it.